Welcome, citizens, to Liberty, Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. We here at Tower 4 have a few very special announcements tonight. First, as you have probably noticed, Tales from the Tower has replaced your regularly seasonally scheduled broadcast. Your other favorite show will return in the summer season. In other news, the seasonal visual recreation collection viewing in Tower 9 has been cancelled by the Division of Interactive Media. The reason for the cancellation was confirmed as being the result of an overzealous yet vigilant chemical cleaning crew who ruptured a water pipe on a floor above the main exhibition hall. While most of the pieces were salvaged, a few pieces were irreparably damaged. Truly most unfortunate news. So, to bring some life back into your eyes, we'll get started with the story. Tonight's tale, Imposter, was written by Caitlin Statz and is read for us by Peter Lewis. So let us learn what can happen when you find yourself seemingly alone on the Skyrail. spent the majority of the morning alongside my colleagues in the lab trying to solve a simple but project-halting flaw in our recent prototype. We did not overcome it this morning, but we were set on figuring it out by our shift's end later in the day. But as the time for the break grew nearer and nearer, the conversation shifted from solving our problem to solving our stomachs. My colleagues' collective attention span never seemed to match my own. Dr. Shale was celebrating her new research grant, and there was a consensus to go out for celebratory drinks during the break, an action greatly against every safety regulation. As the last few minutes of the morning shift ticked away, I grew excited and checked my data pad. There was a flashing light in the upper left hand, denoting I had missed a call. I excused myself from the off-topic chatter of my fellows and listened to the voicemail. Dr. Wallace? It was the voice of my floor's super, Mr. Miles. There appears to have been a problem with your residence mid-morning. Please come back to the apartment as soon as possible so we can address the issue. I'll be waiting. Mr. Miles was an older gentleman who was prone to underplaying the importance of an issue, so I excused myself from the upcoming drinks session with my colleagues and instead promptly left for the Skyrail. It was a dark day, or perhaps it wasn't. The weather never seemed to change, but the sun could cast odd shadows at particular times. The streets and tunnels leading to the station seemed empty. Usually during break or shift changes, the sounds of hundreds and thousands of voices echoed off of the walls and the whole of the city felt alive. 
Empty, it just seemed so sterile, with halls of untarnished metal and towering buildings that cast dark lines everywhere. I was walking quickly, quite unsure of the train schedule at such an abnormal time. I thought about quite a few things in the silence of the walk to the sky rail. What was wrong with my apartment? When was the next train available? Was this station supposed to be closed? Is, is that why it was so silent? To drown out my thoughts, I switched on the shortwave and picked up some news chatter. I had heard it before, more advertisement than news. The chipper woman pitched a new face cream offering. All the help you need to bring life back to your eyes. She was just about to say the pitch again as the station came into sight. As I stepped up to the automatic door, the woman pitched again. All the help you need to bring life back to your eyes. As I stepped through, the shortwave twitched. All the help you need to bring life back to your eyes. All the help you need to bring life back to your eyes. All the help I you need shut to bring it life off. back to your eyes. The station had bad signal, it seemed. I was left with my thoughts. The station was empty. I had never seen such a sight. But when I looked at my clock, I knew it was due to the odd hour. No one was on break. No one was on shift change. Classes were in session, and this wasn't a very prime location for recreation. There was a ding and a flash of light to declare the incoming train, but there was no announcement. All trains out of this station stopped at the next as well, which happened to be my stop regardless. The train pulled up, reflecting flashes of light into the darker corners of the station hall, and the polite chime of the doors ushered me onto the train. There was no one in the train except for an older man sitting at the very end of the car. He was gangly, with tufts of white hair peeking from the end of his gray hood and a generally clean appearance overall. He had taken one of the larger end seats reserved for disabled patrons and carried a hefty cane in his hands as he sat. I was anxious about my apartment and going to disembark at the next stop, so I forewent a seat even though all others were free. The train chimed again and the doors hissed closed. The emptiness of the station slowly slid away as the train began moving. As buildings passed by, the train was cast into alternating sessions of shadow and illumination. I took sideward glances at the old man at the end of the train. He looked a little less ragged after the lights flashed by. Even less so several flashes later. The wild white hair from under the hood seemed absent. Shifts of the light can do rather odd things. All the help you need to bring light back to your eyes. I jumped. The shortwave had twitched on. It ran again and again the over the same line. The I switched it off and chuckled, giving an embarrassed nod to the old man. He didn't look up but I could see his lips curled back into a wide grin. He didn't look too old anymore, or too frail. 
and the wide, downcast grin didn't seem to be fading. I looked away, and in that moment I heard a loud knock. The man had forcefully planted his cane onto the train floor, but it no longer appeared as a cane. The handle appeared like the curve of a pipe, and the shaft was stained, rusted, and metallic. I then took notice of something I could only barely make out from afar. No mark. He had nothing. His hands were dirty and stained, but held no trace of citizenship. Upon closer inspection, lights flashing by, his clothes were dirty, no, filthy, and frayed, if not ragged. I finally brought my eyes up to his face. All the help you need to bring life back to your eyes. He stared right at me, some horrible intention pushing through his expression. His grin was lopsided, one end stretching past natural boundaries, exposing gums and molars, rotting and brown. He locked his eyes on me and stood. This was impossible. The clean old man was now some atrocity before me, approaching me. I dashed to the back of the train car and into the adjacent car. I could hear him approaching. Not quickly, no running, but the sound of metal scratching metal as the pipe end dragged along the floor. I went to the next car, and the next, all of them, were empty, and I had reached the end of the train. He was in the next car over now, still grinning and dragging the pipe. I looked around for a weapon, anything to defend myself or attempt to. The thing before me now held no mercy in its eyes. And I am a small, weak person. The box under the seat read, In case of fire, and contained a fire blanket. I promptly ripped it free and wrapped it around my fist. I thought maybe I could break a window. I punched hard and screamed as I heard the audible crack of my bones. He was at the end of the previous car, now opening the doors. The train should have reached my stop by now. The train should have reached the next two stops by now. There should have been people at the station. There should have been people on the train. I stood at the very end of the train as the man walked towards me, the pipe tapping the poles along the way. That smile was not a smile. As he drew closer, I could see metal wires peeling back the skin around his mouth. 
under his jacket was a shirt weaved from what I could only think of as hair. Looking down at me, he raised the pipe. I flinched as it came full force to my leg, but then only tapped me slightly. This time, he tried to smile with the wires. A practice swing. Then, the full force of the pipe crashed into me. And from there on, my memories are of black and searing white. A shouting woman awoke me in a blur, and medical staff buzzed around me. I was picked up, and the world moved around me. There were so many people now, at the station, in the halls, so many fuzzy people. They tell me that when they found me, it was morning. I had been in a train that was out of service for the night, and no one was sure how I had gotten there. The woman who found me had called for medical help. My legs were indistinguishable from the browned blood of the floor, smashed into the grain of the train. My hood had been torn from my head, and my hand had been mauled, the skin of my mark removed, and the bones of my thumb and pointer finger exposed. I overheard the nurses talking. It looked as though it had been bitten off. The doctors told me yesterday that I may never be able to walk again. But at least all of my hair will grow back. Welcome, citizens, to Liberty, Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, we here at Tower 4 have a few special announcements. The creative team would like to thank you for your support and continued listenership. We know that things are somewhat different without hearing the voices of Kofsky, Rodriguez, Jalo, and Jungfist, but you'll all be hearing from them again before you know it. Additionally, there have been recent advancements in mail technology finally made available to the public. The Department of Research and Development has been working meticulously to better Atreus, and the DRD is happy to report a healthy adjustment to the sodium content of the Sour Edition, soon to be entered into regular circulation. Delightful. Citizens, I know sometimes the world of audio news and entertainment can be a bit distant, so we here at the Liberty Podcast would like to invite you to stop by our booth at C2E2 in Chicago next month. The producer and writer of Critical Research will be at booth 130 spreading the word about the podcast and more so the zero issue of the comic series, an upcoming full volume of Liberty Deception. 
It may be your last chance to get your hands on the limited edition of the comic, possibly a signed version, before they disappear forever. These limited edition versions feature cover art by the legendary illustrator Dave Dorman, who has worked on such stories as Star Wars, Alien, G.I. Joe, and Dungeons and Dragons. But while we're on the topic of things that are disappearing like these books, we would like to introduce you to tonight's tale, Missing, which is written by Caitlin Statz and read for us by Victoria Rowett. And it might help us understand more about the mysterious disappearances that have been plaguing District 6. Founding break was slowly creeping up on us. It was easy to tell that Atticus and I were growing anxious as the week-long break from studies approached. We left our apartment with a wave off from our mother and a skip in our step. Only two days left until the start of break. We waved to Mrs. Gibbard, our elderly neighbor, as we did every morning, and we met our friend Lucius at the elevator for the walk to the train station. He was just as excited as we were for the break. Trips to see the parades and the PAG semifinals at the West Park had been promised, as were meals of nothing but chocolate and new games. No one could pay attention during the classes. It would be worse tomorrow. But we all took the chance to chat with our friends and to psych ourselves up for the break. The next day, we bolted out of the apartment again. We waved to Mrs. Gibbard and ran to the train station. Lucius wasn't at the train station to meet us. Some kids got out early because their parents knew that the last day of lessons before break were useless teaching days. Some used the day before to clean up their apartment and get ready for the year to come. But we planned to meet Lucius at West Park tomorrow for the chocolate and the flares and the tile trading. My classes were a perfect mess, and when I finally met up with Atticus, he said his were too. When the chimes finally released us, we headed home. Cassia! Cassia! He yelled as he ran up to me. My little brother has the silliest way of running, but he smiled wide with the two big gaps in his teeth. Cassia, look what I got. I won them. I won them all. It's Reeve. Maybe 36 new tiles. Want to play? Want to play? So, being the big sister I am, I took the tiles and I lifted them far over his head. You're right, Atticus. There are a lot of tiles here. Some great new ones that I could trade to Lucius. Easy, I taunted. No, no, Cassia, those are mine. Atticus jumped and he swung his arms for the tiles. Yeah, yeah, here. I bet Lucius wouldn't want to trade him. Come on, let's go. We'll see him tomorrow at West Park and play the best game ever. I pulled his hood over his eyes and tossed the tiles back to him. We joked about anything and everything, heading home. And the train was alive with excitement as the Archon's birthday approached. We got to our apartment's floor and were met by the smiling face of old Mrs. Gibbard. Happy founding week eve. Oh, Atticus, look at you. Your teeth are shedding already. And Cassia, what a pretty young woman you're becoming. Smart, too, I know. She produced a small lidded pot from behind her. 
Here, take this home with you. It's a nice treat for the week's festivities. Now run along, kids. Your parents are waiting. We thanked her, and I took the pot back with us to our apartment. My mom commented on Mrs. Gibbard's kindness as she placed the pot on the table, and we were finally free to go have some fun. The day went on, and Atticus and I played at least six games with his new tiles before our mother got the call. It was Lucius's mother, asking if Lucius was here with us, playing tiles or watching broadcasts. My mother shook her head, no, before she said it, and then turned to us. Atticus, Cassia, did you see Lucius today on the train ride home? My mother asked, her voice more concerned than I had ever heard in years. Atticus shook his head, no, but I had more to say. Lucius wasn't at classes today. We didn't meet him at the train this morning. He, he just wasn't there. I answered clearly. We were supposed to meet him at West Park tomorrow with his family to swap and play tiles and watch the flares. Lucius hasn't been home, Cassia. When was the last time you saw him? My mother asked, acting as a proxy for the desperate woman on the line. Yesterday, leaving the train, I gulped back. Atticus wasn't really phased by any of this. He just kept staring at his tiles, waiting for my move. My mother turned back and spoke to Lucius's mother again. No, Vita. I know. I'll keep an eye out. You said he left early this morning? What about Justice Lowe? Have you tried his family? Okay. I'm here if you need me. Bye. My mother sounded sullen and walked over to us. She explained the whole situation to us as though we couldn't hear her talking earlier, and Atticus finally started to get worried. So, Lucas doesn't want to trade? No, Atticus, he does. But we don't know where he is right now, and if we can't find him, he can't trade with you. Do you remember anything Lucius might have said? Lucius's mother, Vita, was a great friend to our family. It was how we had met Lucius in the first place, and it saddened our mother to hear Vita in such distress. As the evening went on, our father came home late from a dinner outing with his fellows at the lab, and soon after, our mother, she rushed to Vita's apartment. Atticus was sad, more so as the night went on, and he went to bed sobbing without a bite to eat. My father and I stayed up watching the broadcast in silence until we both decided to go to sleep for the night. I was worried, and my stomach could not handle the idea of food, so I took a glass of water with me to bed, and that was that. When we woke up, the broadcast and the radio station were filled with joy, but our family was sullen, even Atticus. My mother had not returned, And our father tried to cheer us up by telling us to get dressed to see the parades and the PAG semifinals at West Park, which we did in silence. Vita, her husband, and my mother eventually showed up to our house. And not soon after, we quietly took the train to the park. Trying to be happy was a mistake. Seeing Atticus talking to the other kids and swapping tiles just made Vita cry. And my mother stared down at us as though we had broken something. Even as our favorite team won the PAG, we ate our victory chocolate with no degree of glee and watched the festivities solemnly. I pocketed the top to the chocolate canister, (laughs) a tradition I did every time I was able to get chocolate. But as the darkness rose, the time for the flares grew closer and closer. 
Lucius's parents left for their home. They wanted to check to see if Lucius was there or if anyone had left them any messages. When they were gone, things lightened up a bit. My parents did want us to have a pleasant time, but they couldn't help but sympathize with Lucius's parents. They let us play with the other kids so long as it was within their sight, and we didn't complain. Atticus traded and traded until at least half of his set was new tiles. And he looked at me with that wanna-play face that I know so well. We had a little more chocolate, happily this time, and we watched the flare display in awe. Our parents drank and they cheered up a bit as people wished them joyous founding and a prosperous year to come. Atticus fell asleep and my father had to carry him home. My mother was silent, so I just stood next to them in silence as well. The cheery disposition of the train ride stopped as it reached my family stop. By the time we got to our building, my father, mother, and brother went straight to bed. I was wide awake, and I wandered around the apartment just, well, doing nothing. My stomach was full of sweets, and I was too excited to sit down to watch the broadcast, and I had never enjoyed solo tiles. I recalled what Lucius's mother had said about Lucius having left early the day he disappeared. Sometimes, Lucius would meet us at our apartment and go with us all the way to the train, usually so he could tell his longer stories to us on the way through the trip. I went out into the hall, planning to ask old Mrs. Gibbard if she had seen anything. I went down the hall to her apartment and raised my hand to knock on the door. Just before I did, I I noticed a tile under her door. It was a play tile, and a great one, one that Atticus would be happy to hear I found. I smiled and I knocked on old Mrs. Gibbard's door. It was late, but she answered soon enough. She didn't look as though she had been sleeping. Instead, it looked as though she had been working. Oh, Cassia, joyous founding week to you and a prosperous new year to come. She cooed and and patted my arm. I thanked her and I showed her the tile. I found this under your door. Do you play or can I keep it? She looked at the tile, a bit perplexed. Oh, keep it, keep it. That game holds little fun for an old woman like me. By the way, can I have my pot back soon? I'd like to give some more food to the Otanis down the hall tomorrow. I'm sorry, Mrs. Gibbard. We haven't eaten it yet. We've been caught up in so many things. I'll talk to my mother about it tomorrow morning. And then I looked past her frail frame. There was a tile case sitting on the table in the back of the room. My face fell low as I recognized the silly markings on the case. It was Lucius's. Old Mrs. Gibbard suddenly yanked my arm and she tossed me into the room, the door closing behind me. Oh, you Cassia, too smart for your own well-being. She smacked me again, sending me to the floor. That little boy, oh, he was just so willing to help me, so kind and so plump. She reached for a cooking pot and she swung it at me. It hurt as my nose cracked, but my head remained stable. You really would like it, you know, a growing girl like you. She lashed out again and I fumbled for anything but could not find something to strike her back with. The old woman swung again, the weight of the cooking pot throwing her off balance. I reached in my pocket to retrieve the chocolate canister lid, my sharp memento from the day. I lashed out and I cut Mrs. Gibbard above the eyes. 
I rushed for the door as blood streamed from my nose, and she tried to wipe blood from her eyes. By the door stood a table. I I I took a lamp from it, and I threw it at her. As it smashed into her, she went down, and I fled the apartment. I called the local enforcer before I even woke my parents. I awoke my father, and I told him to come with me, and the blood streaming from my face made him even more quick to listen. Don't let Mrs. Gibbard leave. Don't let Mrs. Gibbard leave. The local enforcer took a while to arrive. I had been babbling and waving my hands about, and my mother was trying to clean the blood from my face. My father listened to every word I said and stood guard at Mrs. Gibbard's door. My mother called Lucius's parents, and they soon arrived. Lucius's father, he, he wanted to rush in, but my father held him back. The enforcer arrived and listened to my babble and to my father's translation. I was getting tired, and my face hurt, and I, I lost some blood. But pretty soon, my father was carrying me back to the apartment, where I easily fell asleep on the sofa. The next day, I heard the truth about what had happened. Lucius's belongings had been found at Mrs. Gibbard's apartment. His tile case, his class pack, his clothes. Parts of bone had been found in the trash compactor. Flesh had been found in her refrigerator unit. Lucius had been Mrs. Gibbard's meals. Right after I'd been taken home, she had been pulled out of the apartment, raving about how he was a plump young lad, so willing to help her cook, so savory. She was later linked to several other disappearances as well, and her apartment was cleaned out by the following day. I noticed that Mrs. Gibbard's small lidded pot was gone from our apartment. We had never eaten any. With Lucius's disappearance and the founding week's treats, the small lidded pot had just sat there, just waiting for our forks and knives. The unspoken fact that still bothered us was that Mrs. Gibbard had been our neighbor for years, and that it was a well-known fact that she was a great cook. Welcome, citizens, to Liberty, Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, we here at Tower 4 have a few brief but special announcements. First, we'd like to thank you for being a listener. I'm told by management that we are nearing 800 subscribers on our iTunes feed. It is with my heartfelt gratitude that I thank every citizen who has rated and reviewed this broadcast. It truly helps our broadcast reach new listeners, and it gives us a bit of an ego boost as well. In other news, our interview later this week with the parents of child protege Cheris DeHart from District 6 has been rescheduled for the following week. While I am sure we are all eager to hear from the proud and allegiant DeHarts regarding the rearing of young citizen Cheris, we can all be assured that it is for a commendable reason. At only the young age of 12, the astonishing citizen Cheris DeHart will be receiving her doctorate mark in a private ceremony later this week. Soon to be Dr. DeHart is a shining example of what we should all aim to achieve for the betterment of Atreus. Congratulations to the DeHart family, and may the Archon watch over you. 
On the topic of children growing up and education and things of that nature, tonight's tale, Pinprick, was written by Caitlin Statz and is read for us by Michelle Frank Merksmer. A few decades ago, something strange happened in District 9. Let's learn more. My son is not doing as well as he should be. His instructors have been contacting me from multiple classes, mathematics, biology, chemistry, planetary sciences. He used to be near the top of his class. I know that he's not the top of his class, but he was really close. So knowing that he is slipping to the lower quarter of the class is disconcerting. Worse off, Publius has been growing aggressive. My friends have been telling me consistently that it may be normal for boys his age to act out. I don't feel like this is normal. Several days ago, Publius arrived home agitated and tired and made a mess of his pack the moment he got home. I received a notification on my data pad within minutes of his return home. It was from one of his instructors. Publius was being reprimanded for violent actions against a fellow student. He has never been violent before, but now I really can't be sure. Publius, did you get into a fight at your courses? I asked. But Publius was just sprawled over the sofa, switching quickly between broadcast channels. He didn't respond to me. I don't know if he heard me, but he had never knowingly ignored me before. Publius, did you get into a fight? I don't think my voice got very stern. I broke it, and I'd break it again. Break yours, too. Publius muttered from the sofa. I'd never seen this side of him. I'd never seen him act this way. Publius was would never speak that way. Broke what, Publius? Nothing. Broke what, Publius? Nothing. 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 I gave up. I I didn't really give up. That sounds so horrible to say, but I had a busy day tomorrow and I honestly didn't have time to deal with his recent antics. I set about preparing meal for myself and set aside some for him on the counter. If he wanted to eat, he'd eat. I had several research articles to read before tomorrow's presentation, and tomorrow's workday also appeared to be booked. Nearing the time for retirement, I went out to see Publius, but he was fast asleep on the sofa. Look who's so rough and bold now, I whispered under my breath as I lifted him up and carried him off to his room. As I was placing him in his bed, I found that he had little dots on his skin. They appeared to be little sections of broken blood vessels and his veins stood out prominently in the immediate area surrounding the bruised and damaged areas. Well, that'll teach you to fight. I bet you will feel very sore in the upcoming days. I took off his shoes and socks. What's wrong with you recently? No thanks, Mom. No problem, Mom. Nothing. I put the sheet over him. Sure, he was being a little menace, but he wasn't always. This was new new and uninvited, but I was tired, and 
and as sleep began to sound more and more enticing, I placed the whole thing in the back of my mind. I closed the door all but completely and walked toward my room. It would feel great with all of this as just the stress of yesterday. Days went on. My friends from work tried to give me encouraging words. He's just acting out, Rafina. It's just a phase. It'll be over before you know it, Rafina. The stress of getting home and having to deal with my own son was becoming unnerving. I love him, but it barely seemed like my little Publius anymore. One morning, I awoke to the ringing of my alarm, a buzz that endured. My body ached. Every muscle seemed to be in disagreement with their purpose. The buzzing didn't stop with the alarm. It continued on as a horrid pulsing in my head that felt worse than any migraine I had previously suffered. I felt exhausted and entirely unprepared to face the day, or even my morning. I ached through movement and muscle memory. I dressed for my morning athletics and stepped lightheaded and weakly onto the treadmill. I don't know what I was thinking stepping onto that treadmill the way I felt. I barely made it 20 steps before my legs collapsed beneath me and the whole of my body felt ill. When the weight of my body hit the treadmill, it came to an emergency stop and I rolled to the floor. Publius! I called out. I had not awoken Publius yet, and I wasn't sure if he could even hear me. Publius! I called out again, eyeing the data pad on the kitchen counter. My arms felt so weak, and my legs were rubber beneath me. Rallying strength seemed impossible, and I hung my head, only to spy a great blue bruise on my arm. Blotchy, blue, and red. A large, singular, circular dot was centered in the bruise. I called out to Publius again. Tiny, fast footfalls foreshadowed the arrival of Publius to the doorframe. Mother, what's wrong? Before me, as I looked up, I saw a Publius I had not seen in weeks. He was bright and energetic, but his face was washed with worry. Publius, dear, get Mommy her data pad, please. Publius ran over to the counter and fetched the data pad. You have a message, Mommy. Thank you. I'll, I'll get to it later, I uttered, as I typed in a message to medical services. Go get ready for your courses, Publius. Someone is going to be coming over to help Mommy later. Don't miss your train. I put down the data pad, and Publius turned to head to the bathroom. Wait, Publius. Get me a pillow, please, before you go. Please. Publius walked over to me. No, Mom, I'll help you up, he said as he put his little arms around me. With a strength more so of an athletic teenager than a young child, he lifted me to the bed. I was shocked, but too ill to respond. Thank you, Publius. Now, now go. Get ready, or you will miss your train. I closed my eyes and lay down on the bed. The world spun. A glimmer of light came from the room around me. A few noises, and I fell back to sleep. A knock rattled the metal of the bedroom door. It was the neighbor woman, Dr. Williamson. I heard some words, but not all of them, about medical services 
help, rest, and check in, but mostly, I slept. Before I knew it, nearly six hours had passed in slumber, and I awoke hungry and aching. I awaited the arrival of Publius back from his courses, but my data pad blinked with a new message. Dr. Rufina Conch, we dispatched a medic to you earlier today. It was determined that you need significant rest and that it appears you lost a lot of blood. Our in-home service already administered intravenous fluids to you earlier today, but due to your need for significant rest, we have determined that you are no longer currently fit to care for your son, Publius, until you have ample time to recover. Your son has been placed within the care of your neighbors, the Williamsons. Please do not worry, you will be fine. Another medical technician will be by tomorrow to check on you again and administer another round of intravenous liquids. Special meal has been provided. It is on your bedside table. Please take the time to recover and you should know that your work has been informed of your absence. Recover well and may the Archon watch over you. I didn't try to sit up. I turned my head slowly to see the drink and meal provided for me. It took me 20 minutes to eat just a few bites. In the end, it took me three days to only slightly recover from whatever it was that happened. When I was finally up and walking around on a regular basis, I went to go and knock on the door of the Williamsons. Nice people, both doctors in their respective fields. We had dinner with them about twice a year and also sent greetings to each other on the holidays. I knocked weakly against the door and resulted to the doorbell when I was sure my knocking had not been heard. Dr. Conch, are you feeling better? Publius is doing fine, but you look very pale. Please go lay back down. I can call my husband to check on you if you need it. Dr. Williamson looked at me with concern, and I did feel rather horrible still now. So Publius is okay, I whispered out. He is doing fine. Do not worry yourself. Just go and get yourself better. She wrapped an arm around my shoulder and walked me over to the door to my apartment. Can I see him? Oh dear, it's course time. He's not in. Please. Go rest. You are confused. She opened the door to the apartment. I walked in and walked straight to my bed. Publius was fine. Dr. Williamson was correct. I was tired, and I went to sleep. At some point, a medical technician came in and treated me. I ate a few bites, but I was quickly back to sleep. I woke the next day with more vigor. I checked the time. Publius should be home. Home at the Williamsons. It was so quiet here without him, without his music, without the broadcast playing. I walked over to the Williamsons again and knocked, harder this time. Dr. Williamson opened the door again. Hi, I'm feeling better today. Is Publius in? No, dear. You've been sleeping. Today the students went to the Z Planetarium. They won't be home for several more hours. 
She placed a hand on my arm. You don't have to worry. Just rest. Her face lit up for a moment. I have his recent progress report saved on my data pad if you would like to see it. Go back to your apartment and I'll meet you there with it. I walked back to the apartment. The Z Planetarium is wonderful. If Publius likes it, maybe I could take him back one day. As I sat down, Dr. Williamson walked in, data pad in hand. His marks have been rising. I think his worrying for you has really settled him down. Dr. Williamson was talking, but I focused on the numbers before me. Publius seemed to be doing so well now. It put me at ease, but I was missing my son deeply at this point. Can you wake me when he comes in for the day? I asked. My recent strength seemed short-lived, and I was already tiring out. You should just rest. I'm not sure exactly when he'll get back. She stood up and walked to the door. He is fine, so don't worry yourself. And she left. I ate a meal canister, rested on the sofa with a broadcast, showered, and went soon after to bed. The next day, I went back to the Williamson's again. It was no longer course time, and I wanted to ask my son about the Z Planetarium. I knocked, and Dr. Williamson opened the door. I want to see Publius. I miss him, and I want to tell them that he can come home soon. I'm feeling so much better already. He's not- I cut her off. He is. He has to be in. He needs to be here. It makes no sense that he would have two straight days of after-course activities. I wanted to see my son. He's not awake right now. He is taking a nap. Dr. Williamson stood up a bit straighter, and she looked at me oddly. Please wake him up. I stepped into the doorway. I want to see my son. From behind the glaring Dr. Williamson, I could hear a noise that unsettled me greatly. A moan, like a gagged yell and screech, was coming from a door at the end of their apartment. I am not a violent woman, but I pushed Dr. Williamson to the ground with as much weakened strength as I could muster, dashed towards the door. I was lightheaded by the time I reached it, but I was set on finding my son. The door was a slider, and I didn't have the key code. Hearing the moan again, I reached for a nearby object, a heavy, abstract art statue, and, and dashed it against the panels. A spark of light. The light flickered in and out, and the door slid open. Inside was a child, older than Publius, and chained, strapped and crazed. He looked abhorrent. His eyes were gleaming purple, and his pupils were massive. He was so pale, but his veins stood out greatly, popping up and wrinkling his skin. I thank the Archon that it wasn't Publius. I turned to a shocked Dr. Williamson. Where is my son? I held the art sculpture back up menacingly. What the fuck is that? Where is my son? Dr. Williamson glared at me. She glanced at another door, then moved quickly toward me. I tossed the sculpture and it cracked her across the side of the head, sending her to the ground. I opened every door. Bathroom. Bedroom. Locked. I smashed the lock open, and inside was a bedroom. 
and on the bed was Publius, asleep, intravenous needles dripping something into him. Publius! Publius? I rushed over and slowly took the needle out. The liquid dripping from one was creamy and gleamed in the light. The other was dark red and smelt of copper. Mommy? Publius opened his eyes and winced in pain as the needles came out. Yes, yes, dear. Come on. Come on. We're leaving. Come on. I helped him out of the bed. He followed me, hand in hand, and I, I covered his eyes as we passed the bleeding Dr. Williamson on the floor. I got to the door, and down the hall of the apartment complex was the other Dr. Williamson returning home. He saw me with Publius and started rushing toward us. I took as little time as I could to reach our apartment door across the hall, and I slammed it shut behind us. I called the Civil Defense Force and waited for the officers with heavy breath. Dr. Williams had never knocked on the door and never tried to get Publius back. When I briefly explained what happened, they informed me that both Dr. Williamson's were gone, and so was the person, that creature from that horrible room. They launched an investigation. There was no official medical record from my call to the medical services. It had all been blocked and filtered through Dr. Williamson. Their apartment was filled with illegal medical equipment, but they were nowhere to be found, even after a colony-wide search. Within a week, the Public Works Division was cleaning out the apartment, and a new young couple moved in. Publius was fine when I first got him back but he slowly became more and more aggressive as time went on. I asked him one day about what happened. He said the Williamsons were giving him shots to make him grow up big and strong. They were feeding him special food and made him sleep with the needles in. The Civil Defense Force contacted me back after a week. The red liquid I had found in the apartment, being pumped into Publius, was blood. More specifically, my blood. The Williamsons had been drugging me and draining me for weeks, but I've noticed something now. Publius is getting far more pale. I've been making him very special dinners recently to help him in the only way I can think of. I'm afraid they will take him away if they think he will turn out like that monstrous boy I found in their apartment. So I feed him special meals to keep him happy and normal and not so pale. I'm so tired, but I love my son. Welcome citizens to Liberty, Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, we here at Tower 4 have a few brief but special announcements. First, the Department of Public Affairs has informed us that a new document has just been released as declassified information for the purposes of informing our citizen listeners and interested parties of the accompanying visuals for the expedition of Dr. Kovsky and his party. The Liberty Fringe Iconography Guide a supplement to Dr. Kovsky's inethnographic investigation of the tribes and activities of the Southern Fringe is now available on our web store. This small pocket booklet will allow listeners to identify and reference symbols from both the adventures of Dr. Kovsky and the upcoming Liberty Deception graphic novel. 
It is also available digitally for those who support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash libertypodcast. This visual guidebook will also be of great interest to many fellow citizens interested in learning a little bit more about the fringe. It's all in the name of science, right? Speaking of which, tonight's tale, For Science, was written and is read for us by Caitlin Statz. What exciting events could possibly be happening at a water treatment facility? Let's find out. Newly graduated from the Science Institute and overflowing with certifications, I was underwhelmed when I got the open research position at the water treatment facility. My family was ecstatic. It was a great position. Important enough, highly intellectual, well compensated, and more. The research position was right up my academic avenue. It was the natural order of things for me to be there. It was boring, but what could I expect right out of the Institute? I started off rather simply. The first couple of days were just an introduction to the staff and facility. The staff consisted of some rather droll researchers, public affairs reps, engineers, and maintenance staff, but the facilities were fantastic. If I had actually enjoyed the field of research, I might have reached a utopia, but intellectually I did not feel challenged. The primary water tanks towered overhead, and the sound of rushing water was unlike anything heard elsewhere. The pipelines were color-coded and complex, stretching like a circuit board throughout the facility. Red pipes here, blue pipes there. The colors themselves were astonishing, and the structure was a domain unparalleled in my lifetime. It was dangerous, but it was exciting. Maintenance workers would hang upside down from pipes like children on a playground just to reach a welding spot. Researchers would flash fill entire tanks in minutes, filling the air with heavy humidity. Sure, it was work, hard work, but here it seemed so alive. As time went on, I got to know my fellow workers over break time meal and walks to and from the train station. They were kind, and they had stories to tell. Dr. Blackwell had been working at the facility for longer than I was alive, and he was filled with stories. He told of a time he and the scientists from the lab one floor up had to evacuate due to a pipe leak, and everyone within the facility escaped with a slight substance intoxication and a two-hour stint on the lower timbre. He said it was odd to meet the other scientists. The heavy water tanks meant that the water treatment facility occupied the bottom floors of the building, but the above floors belonged to several different divisions and research laboratories. Dr. Blackwell was a bit too intoxicated to remember much, but these scientists were from some teletrans lab or the like. He mostly remembered the QTTP heading on the data pad more than anything as the low-octave scientists were laughing out. As the months rolled on, my research finally got into the monotonous details. I was spending longer and longer days at the facility, coming in with the first shift, power napping near lunch, and leaving with the last shift. I wasn't enjoying it at all, but I was the most successful person my age that I knew. I took breaks to help my fellow researchers on their work and eventually had my name attached to multiple papers. My research was the long game, measuring isotopic enrichment over time in the individual water reservoirs. But as a few new researchers transferred in from a different facility, the timetables grew busier and busier. On one night, I had to stay late. Later than usual. Certainly later than the others. At last, there was no one but the maintenance staff and me. They joked about being a hard worker and that I needed a social life. My response was to laugh, and I wished them a pleasant evening. 
They were done with everything but the frontmost control room, and I wound my way back through the maze of pipes, colors nearly indistinguishable now that the primary lights had been deactivated and only the amber auxiliaries lit the facility. In two hours, I would be home, but that would not really be an improvement. A 20-minute train ride just to arrive to an insignificantly empty apartment. If I slept for seven hours, I would wake up again just to take the 20-minute train ride back to the facility. I was 26 years old, well-educated, well-employed, and well-bored. Reaching the needed access panel, I hooked up my data reader to the panel. The readings would take a few minutes, and I needed to take additional samples from the lowermost density separation gradient tank. It wasn't too far, maybe another two minutes into the tangled pipework. I left my data reader to download the readings and run through the system while I went to take additional samples. If I could get this done, maybe I could ask for a day off. Taking a long weekend looked like a bright spot on the horizon. The Z Planetarium had a new exhibit opening soon, and it sounded relaxing enough. Bobbing and weaving through the amber-shaded pipes, I reached for the plastic sample tube in my coat and undid the top, just in time to strike my head on a low-hanging pipe. The sample tube's top went rolling off under a tank. Scrap. I cursed and knelt down to see where it had stopped. Just as I thought it was lost to the dark of the under-tank, it rolled back out. Huh. Lucky. I scooped up the top, but it was sticky, and I dropped it again in disgust. I couldn't use it now anyway. It was contaminated with whatever goo had accumulated under the tank. I would need to inform the maintenance and janitorial staff of this overlooked problem. I turned, wanting to head back, but noticing I could not recognize what direction I was currently facing. The amber lights made it impossible to follow the colored pipes like street maps. But I started back, or at least the direction I thought was back, but my foot was not lifting from the ground. Stupid pipes. I grumbled and looked down at my foot. Not pipes, but some sticky puddle had affixed my boot to its position. I wrenched my foot free of my boot and walked forward, weaving through the pipes. I stopped dead in my tracks as I heard a noise above me and covered my head. At times, workers high in the pipes would drop their tools and cause grave injury to those below, but nothing seemed to keep falling. I kept on my way, but I soon heard the noise again, a clatter above me and then a shuffle behind. Birmingham? Zhang? Is that you? No response. There was no talking, no laughing, and no movement. I was in a narrow section between two tanks with pipes on both sides, and I just waited. I heard a dripping sound from behind me. Turning my head, my hair got stuck in the same sticky substance my boot had been stuck in. It was on the pipes behind me. It hadn't been there moments ago. A shuffling noise came from in front of me. I was boxed in, and my hair was stuck to the goo on the pipes behind me. I wrenched up my hair and out of desperation pulled out my pocket tool and cut a massive chunk off to free myself. As I fell forward, I could hear the sound again in front of me. It was followed soon after by a skittering noise that echoed on the tanks. I was too scared to go forward and it was impossible to go back. I thought for a moment about crawling under the tanks, but then I remembered the sample tube's cap rolling back out covered in that goo. Going under the tanks was not an option. Then I recalled the maintenance workers climbing the pipes, and I readied myself for my first vertical facility experience. I took off my other boot and planted my foot on the nearest horizontal pipe. I climbed, and as the fumbling and skittering noises beneath me grew louder, I climbed faster. The city takes the fear of heights out of you at an early age, but not the fear of falling. I gripped every pipe like it was my lifeline, and I didn't look back. That is, until I did. Beneath me, the fumbling noise never seemed to get farther away. And when I looked down, I saw two large, featureless orbs reflecting back up at me in the amber light. It looked like it had form, like the large, dark gash beneath those orbs was a mouth. I climbed faster, taking more clumsy actions than I should have. 
The tanks near me were tall, and when I finally reached the top of the tanks, I was happy to plant my feet down on the hard tops. The clamoring from below continued. Whoever was coming up after me was not stopping and was very near now. I didn't wait to see it come over the edge. I ran to the other side of the tank and looked around. Even in the amber light, I could see a hole in the ceiling just a few feet off the tank. The next floor above was a completely different research facility. If I could get in, maybe someone was on duty, and maybe I could call security services. I struggled over the pipes and reached the hole. I should have stopped and turned back when I noticed the goo on one side of the hole, but my pursuer was so close now that I couldn't stop running. I avoided the goo and climbed up the hole. Once in the research lab above, I tipped a desk over the hole. Everything went quiet, but everything also went dark. It looked as though no one worked the night shift in this lab, and thusly none of the lights were on. I stumbled around the lab, feeling for the walls in a security panel. This research lab also had tanks of some kind, although their circumference was significantly smaller than the massive water treatment tanks below. I finally reached what felt like another desk and turned on the data screen just for the beam of light it produced. The tanks. Great Archon, the tanks. Each of the smaller tanks in the lab was a transparent tube housing impossible monstrosities. Their flesh was mangled and their limbs were all the wrong size. The lesions and growths on their bodies didn't match anything I had seen. At points, it looked like some had teeth growing from their stomachs, and some even seemed to be two beings entangled together in skin and organs. Worst of all, one of the tanks was shattered open. The liquid from in the tank had pooled into a corner I had yet to reach, but the monstrosity was absent. Wide-eyed and panicked, I typed random numbers again and again into the data screen activating the security protocols for unauthorized use. A red light near a door flared and I ran towards it, banging and screaming. A bang came from nearby and I sighed. The security team was near. The bang came again, but this time I could tell it was from behind me. The upturned desk on the floor shook and I cried out. I banged at the door. It was locked and the security personnel should have been there by now. It banged again. Just as it did, I could see orbs of red reflection turn towards me from the other tanks. I fell next to the door their eyes on me. Just then the door hissed open and a hulking black figure stepped in, grasping the back of my lab coat and pulling me out the door, followed soon after by the sound of the door lock. You are not permitted on this floor, Dr. Kamdar. The security officer stated. Well, those things aren't permitted on mine. I screamed back. This took him off guard. The door was sealed, Dr. Kamdar. The test subjects in this floor do not have access to the water treatment facility below. He examined me with aggravation and worry, pausing at the sight of my lopsided hair in distress. There's a hole! I gasped. In the ceiling! I mean the floor! I waved towards the room. They, it, one of its, got into the below facility. It chased me up here! More security guards arrived, and I was escorted away to make a statement. I was kept in the holding cell overnight, followed by a day of more questioning. I was shaken by the event and given several days off as a reward for signing multiple non-disclosure documents. I saw the new exhibit at the Z Planetarium, went for drinks at Jacob West Park, and got a haircut. I actually caught up on some visual broadcasts for the first time in ages. Yesterday I went back to work, the same 20-minute train ride waiting for me. I met my new overseer, Dr. Ogawa, who looked delighted to see me. She and I were talking as she opened the door to the room. Inside, the eyes of those test subjects met mine, and Dr. Ogawa turned to me. There are not many people who would choose this line of work. I understand. I smiled and followed Dr. Ogawa. There have to be certain sacrifices for the sake of science. Welcome, citizens. 
to Liberty, Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, we here at Tower 4 have a few brief but special announcements. A quick update on critical research. Our team has written the script for the first four episodes, which are already longer than the script for the entire first season. So you could almost say that we've written just as much as season one already, though we still have quite a ways to go. Additionally, we'd like to remind everyone in Tower 17 of District 11 that maintenance workers from Goptum will be doing extensive repairs and calibrations throughout all of the floors of the tower, following yesterday's fire. The cause of the fire is still unknown, but by tonight, the gravity, oxygen levels, pressure, and temperature should be returned to their normal levels. On the topic of normalcy, it is easy to overlook the small things that make up your daily routine. For instance, a misplaced data pad or an odd elevator ride can certainly undermine the normal feel of life. Floor None is written by Caitlin Statz and is read for us by Sean Francis. After several years playing fetch for an interior decorating team, I gratefully accepted the new position as the interdepartmental courier for a new research division of GOPTM. The selected floors of a particularly damaged tower in District 9 had been rebuilt, renovated, and modified over the last few months to suit the needs of the new set of research and testing units. The majority of the other workers were already in place everything from managing research leads to janitorial staff, but a couple of additions were overlooked at the beginning. The courier job was one, thankfully. About a week into the job, I was extremely happy with the new position. I was responsible for delivering items between labs, floors, and even buildings within the district. It was a big upgrade from carting strange sculptures and furniture across the city. My new job feels much more meaningful after being entrusted with these more important objects. In the middle of my second week, I was running a whole queue of interlaboratory packages from one floor to another. Floor 8 had a whole cart piled carefully with objects to be delivered up to floor 19. A rather nonchalant green-garbed researcher signed over the cart to me, and I headed off with the loaded trolley toward the floor lobby. I passed the recreation hall on the way out and stopped in to take a quick drink. Inside sat a few of the floor eight lab workers near the end of the shift, taking time to catch up on their day. Octavia was seated across from the door and greeted me upon arrival. She's a wonderful woman, very friendly and talkative. She walked over to me following my arrival. How are you, Festus? She poured me a tin of water. I'm so happy my shift is nearly over. This place really disturbs me this late in the evening. Disturbs? This made no sense, as the whole building was a perfectly functional, clean, and diligently patrolled set of science labs. Yes, it makes me feel so... very uneasy. 
Sorry, I can't really explain it. Flavia and Tertius also get the same feeling. Have you? She sipped her drink. Do you get the same feeling, I mean? No, not really. I really quite like the new renovation aesthetic. Very clean. I downed the drink and pondered that perhaps she was simply accustomed to the general dilapidated nature of District 9. But my thoughts were interrupted by the beeping of my data pad. The delivery queue was awaiting confirmation. Well, I guess not everyone does. Have a productive day. I'll see you tomorrow, perhaps, Festus? Maybe I'll come watch over you. She stirred a drink and walked back to the table. I nodded and turned the courts around, heading out the door. When I got to the lobby, the place was empty. But one of the elevator doors was already open and vacant, so I carefully wheeled the cart into the lift. As I pushed the cart, the front wheel stuck the edge of the elevator platform and unbalanced several pieces from the front of the cart. Fully in the lift, I scrabbled forward to catch and adjust the falling equipment as the door slid shut. With everything finally back in place, and a few mumbled curses, I reached out for the indicator for floor 19. As I reached for the panel, I found a distinct lack of buttons, or a panel. The door was already shut, and the elevator jostled slightly as it began to move. Confused, I looked for a service button of any kind and found nothing. I was in some sort of maintenance or private elevator with a preset destination, and I awkwardly waited for my arrival. Some of the more private floors had specific elevators, and I grew anxious of my job security as I approached what I suspected might be an angered supervisor. When the elevator finally stopped, I noticed that I did not know whether I had traveled up or down, seeing as I had spent most of my time stressing over all possible excuses to avoid a firing scenario. When the door chimed open, I tried my best to form a casual smile while waiting for the chastising words of security personnel, but no one was there. The door slid open with a silent glide, and before me was a plain hallway, void of angry or armed peoples. Relieved, I stepped outside the elevator and pulled the cart out of the elevator behind me. I paid careful attention to the stacked objects this time, as I passed it over the ridge. It was fine, and I checked the outside of the door for a floor number indicator, but to no avail. Additionally, the door slid silently closed as I was inspecting the hallway, and I only leapt toward it after my attempt was certainly futile. The elevator closed, and as far as I could see, there was no call button. With the elevator door closed, I stood in the hallway in silence. There were two doors on the left wall and two on the right, as well as another at the end of the hall. It was a relatively short section of hall, and the doors were rather close to each other, which led me to believe they were storage closets or offices instead of labs like most other floors. I checked my data pad for the internal signal, finding that not even a message could go in or out. Regardless, I typed up a message to my supervisor and to Octavia in the hopes it would go out when the signal connected. Stuck on private floor. Can't call the elevator. Please locate. I stood there for what I assumed was five minutes in absolute silence. It was an awkward feeling, like running late to a course as a student, yet not wanting to go in and acknowledge you were late. So after several minutes of silently standing, I walked over to the nearest door on the left and knocked lightly. Uh, Hello, this is the Interdivisional Courier. Did you request a package pickup? I lied. It was a defense mechanism. 
They couldn't be overly angered with me for just trying to do my job. No response led me to try that same thing with the first door on the right. But when no one responded again, I wondered if this floor was even meant to be in operation. With the new labs moving into the building, there may be some floors, or at least some sections of floor, that were still unassigned or without use. Since this thought did not help my stress regarding being stuck on a floor without an elevator call, I tried the next door. This is the interdivisional courier. Did you request a package pickup? At which point, after no reply, I tried opening the door. It was securely locked. I walked around my cart, which was placed in the middle of the hallway at this point, and tried the last door on the left wall. The moment I placed my knuckles against the door, a great scream launched itself from the door at the end of the hall. The voice of a woman screamed a dreadful howl and yelled in a terrified panic for help again and again, its voice penetrating through the door. I rushed over to the door at the end of the hallway and shoved it open as quickly as possible. Unlike the others, it was not locked, and I found myself within the room and upon its floor rather quickly. Once I was in the room, the yelling stopped completely. It was silent again, and I stood up to scan the room. It stretched a little over two stories tall, and metal crates were stacked in piles around the walls and in the center. Directly in the center was a disturbing set of tall male mannequins in varying types of tactical armor standing at the end of a shooting range. From the looks of the room as a whole, it appeared to be an old testing range that was converted into storage. The ceiling lights were on, but none of the first floor wall lights seemed to be operational. If this was an old military research and testing ground, the screams I heard most likely came from some test dummy stuffed away in a crate. There was a flight of stairs leading to a ring balcony that comprised the second floor, and from the looks of it, there was an old interfloor communication relay in the upper corner of the room. From my position on the first floor, I headed over to the stairs. The loud clang of my footfalls on the metal greatly contrasted the heavy silence that seemed as much a part of the room as the warm, stale air. Halfway up the stairs, the ceiling lights flickered, and I halted my ascent to watch them do so. Upon reaching the final step, they flickered again, and I made my way over toward the relay. It was there, a few scant paces away from my destination, that the lights gave out entirely. No windows? No auxiliary lights resulted in the entire room becoming a black, gaseous patch around me. Seeing no alternative, I kept my course and continued again toward where I believed the relay to be, my footfalls sending metal vibrations through the dark room. After a few steps, I thought I heard something and stopped walking. A skittering noise, tiny scrapes and taps against the metal floor, scurried around me and then stopped. It went silent again as I stood still, listening for anything I could hear and recalling my wandering arms. After I heard nothing again and moved myself forward, my arms back out in front of me, behind me I heard it. A clicky clack any time I stepped, and it was not coming from me. I lifted my foot and placed it down to the ground as slowly and softly as possible as to make no noise. Click. I held my breath, but I could still hear breathing. The breath was soft 
but wheezy, and for a moment I thought I heard the clicking of teeth. I stepped again, and the click of it grew closer, the wheeze grew louder. For a brief moment my fear overcame me, and I turned about, my grasping arms in the dark still flailing about, and I touched it. I fumbled and crashed, fleeing my way back toward the stairs. Whatever it was that I touched dashed away, but now, out of sync with my steps in the dark, I could hear it. It ran about me, wide circles growing smaller and smaller as it skittered in the dark. What I touched was large. It was not some small little thing, but in fact, large enough to be touched by my hand straight out in front of me. The wheezing was so clear now, and so much louder, and approaching, but I was at the first step and gripped the rails as I vaulted myself down several steps at a time. My feet slid out from beneath me, glancing off the edge of a stair in the pitch black and casting me down the stairs in a heap. My rolling heap was thankfully faster than the skittering, and I reached the bottom of the stairs fairly quickly. Having landed on my arm, my wrist burned with pain as I stood up and tried to rush a feeling path to the door from which I came. I reached out and felt, recoiling in surprise and fear, but the mannequin didn't move. I composed myself and set out toward the door again, lost within the maze of crates. The skittering was close upon me now. Every time I moved, the thing moved with me, and I could hear it dash from my left to my right on the metal floor. At the edge of my vision, I could see a sliver of light coming from beneath the door, and it gleamed like a beacon in my frightened and overwhelmed mind. Turning towards the light, I felt air brush by me as the thing in the darkness moved terrifyingly close to me. It could so easily catch up to me. Why not just grab me? It skittered away. But as I grew closer to the door, its horrible noise told me it was right upon me again. Within reach of the frame, I stretched out towards it, but the hand in the dark grasped my clothing, attempting to rip me back into the dark. Its grip settled on the hard corners of my data pad, and to free myself, I unclipped it, sending the unseen force rolling back with a clatter. This brief victory invigorated me, and I reached the door, swinging it open and tumbling out. I could hear it approaching, so quickly this time, and closed the door as fast as possible. As I pressed my weight against it, a large crash shook the door and momentarily threw me off balance. Repositioned and ready, the crashes came in volleys and were paired with skittering and tapping against the back of the door. Whatever it was tried to get through. Whether or not freedom or I was the target, I cannot say. Between volleys and clicks, I heard a soft, mechanized buzz I at first didn't recognize. But as my eyes scanned the small hallway for any source of aid, I set my gaze upon the elevator. The noise I had heard was the elevator activating and moving, hopefully soon into position on my floor. I waited for the end of a volley and leapt forth for my cart, yanking it back to the door with me and placing it in tandem with my weight before it. The cart shook and the objects I tried to protect before fell to the floor with all manner of termination-sure sounds. A ding. This was it. The elevator doors began to slide open, and I waited for them to reach their full width. As the crashing and clicking sounds lulled, new sounds of wheezing howls and laughing poured out under the door. The lull was all I needed, and I set my feet to flee across the small hallway and into the open elevator. I reached it just as the doors began to close, and crashed my back against the back of the elevator as I dashed in at full speed. 
Facing out of the closing doors, I saw the volley begin again, and the great door pushed open slightly, cascading my cart of breakables across the floor. Another volley. It opened more. The gap in the elevator door grew smaller, and with the final volley, I could see the door swing open as the lights in the hallway popped and died. Ding. The closed, lighted elevator was on its way. The soft, mechanical whir, unknowing of the horror it just replaced. The door opened to an empty elevator lobby, and I jumped out of the elevator, one leg in the door to stop it from closing behind me again. The buttons were there, as were the floor indicator signs. I was on floor 12. I took my leg out of the door and let the elevator leave. Several days later, after my short suspension without pay due to the unexplained loss of materials and an investigation into their whereabouts that led nowhere, I ran into Octavia. Festus, why do you keep leaving me such weird messages? Is this a prank? To make me feel bad about saying this place unsettles me? She looked cross and held her data pad in her hand. What? No, I haven't sent you anything. I mean, I sent you that one. She cut my rambling off and pushed the data pad at me. She tapped the screen and a recording played. Clicking. Tapping. Wheezing. Welcome, citizens, to Liberty, Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, we here at Tower 4 have a few brief but special announcements. An update on the pressure changes in District 9, it has now been determined that the drastic changes in local atmospheric pressure were the outcome of an accidental mishap resulting from the district's take-your-child-to-work day. The dizziness, vomiting, sinus discomfort, and joint pain will fade quickly, and the at-fault party has been reprimanded. Well, at least it was only a simple atrium error. Something easily fixable without much damage to the vital equipment that keeps our wonderful city in pristine condition. But what if it were a real problem? Perhaps something not so easily fixable. A fault. A failure. A breakdown. A malfunction. What if? Malfunction was written by Travis Vengroff and is read for us by special guest David Cummings. Government-sanctioned private investigator. Most citizens will romanticize the job. They'll tell you it's a role filled with great adventures, secretive spy-type work, or celebrity bodyguard detail. That's not the case. Not normally. Typically, we look into minor infractions, marital infidelity, runaways, claims of intellectual theft... We get the boring, day-to-day things that the community orderlies don't have the time to look into, 
Issues not important enough to involve the CDF. In this specific instance, I was hired by two citizens in District 4. They were a couple that lived on the first floor of a 19-story habitation complex, and they suspected someone was spying on them. The systems on all their devices had been acting strangely, and one of the tamper fail-safes they'd installed, after they initially felt suspicious, had been tweaked. I met with the couple. They were fairly nice kids. Young, friendly, good-looking. Altogether, model citizens. They gave me a nice bonus just because I accepted the job. Before you ask, it's not too atypical a practice, tipping. The couple had two of their own hypotheses. An old gossip down the hall, or perhaps a mystery voyeur hoping to see some skin. Either way, anyway, they didn't feel safe. They felt as though they were being watched or listened to, so we met at a club nearby, across from the Sigmund Center. I told them to turn everything off before they left for work the next day, and that I'd start my investigation then. I'm not really much of a techie, but as a GSPI, I have access to tools that are smarter than me. I used the bonus money to buy a good analytics, or diagnostics tool, and took the rest of the day off. The next morning, I walked to the couple's hab complex and used the provided key to enter their apartment. It was a nice place, all things considered, and it was clear to me that they put some time into cleaning the place before I arrived. While I appreciated the sentiment, I hoped that it wouldn't clue in the would-be snooper. Regardless, I got to work. Using a simple override tool I'd been issued, I enabled very specific functions of the devices I wanted to investigate. The technology allowed me to investigate without enabling the motion tracking, intranet, or audio-visual capabilities of the devices under scrutiny. I then used my new diagnostic toy to assess what was happening. Here's where it got weird. According to the diagnostic, some of the devices were still on, only in some sort of sleep mode. They weren't recording at that moment, at least I don't think they were, apparently because certain algorithms were not being met. The diagnostic also explained the display lights that tell you when a device is on or off had been reprogrammed, and that the devices were never truly off. The smart devices in their bathroom, bedroom, and kitchen had also been recording and transmitting full-quality videos via short range to somewhere nearby. The videos, disguised as fragmented data, were stored locally and deleted after being transferred via intranet over time to avoid affecting hab-wide bandwidth. I copied all of the three videos that hadn't yet been deleted onto my data pad as evidence and left the apartment. Plainly put, I wasn't going to be able to track who had done this using technology. This pervert, or whatever, clearly knew what he was doing and had acted carefully as far as I could tell. 
Again, I'm admittedly not a tech nerd, but the diagnostics tool was able to help me understand that the transmissions were being sent to somewhere within the hab. It felt nice to narrow down a search to six blocks of a 19-story building. I started with the basics. The pervert would probably be someone fairly close to the couple, at least within a few floors of them, so I spent much of the morning going door to door, posing as a utility and maintenance worker. I planned to ask anyone I saw if they'd seen anyone suspicious tampering with the doors or utility boxes, but since it was a work day, no one was home at any of the apartments I visited. So instead, I ran diagnostics, just to make sure that no one had files that matched the same sizes and file names as the ones I'd downloaded. I discovered that my clients were not the only ones being watched. They were just one of the only ones aware that they were being watched. Every apartment I went inside seemed to have an eerily similar set of instances on their devices. Anything remotely smart was never truly turned off. That's when I noticed that the video files I'd saved earlier were missing. I was inside an empty apartment, in the bathroom, standing in front of a mirror when I noticed the files were missing. As if on cue, a little blue light on the mirror blinked on. The mirror was playing a fashion app, one that lets you augment what's being reflected in the mirror so consumers can see how various clothes will look on them. It just turned on, like it wanted me to know it was watching me. But the usual female voice meant to consult your fashion choice was mute. It blinked a few styles of hoods over my head before it began processing too quickly, and ever so slowly, sprawling handwriting appeared across the mirror. You're not welcome here. That's all it said before static in the mirror started appearing blotting out my eyes in the reflection and switching on a loud, disorienting hiss. Then, behind me, I saw the shower turning on. Full temperature, full pressure. When I say full temperature, I mean that the water came out at industrial heat. So hot it boiled and hissed out of the pipes. It felt unbearably hot just standing a yard and a half away. The room immediately steamed and I stumbled to close the shower door, which thankfully appeared watertight. Attempting to leave, I noticed that the door leading out of the bathroom was locked. I guessed it was some kind of sick home invasion defense system and frantically tried a combination of voice commands and special codes to override whatever was locking me in the scalding room. As the shower filled to about shin height, I realized my civil attempts wouldn't work, and I started slamming the door with all my weight. Thankfully, it was one of those newer doors, not up to old security standards, and I was able to break through by the time the water reached about half of the shower's capacity. I ran through the kitchen to the front door and remembered feeling uneasy when it opened. I was going to get the force involved on this one. Someone was going to be in real trouble. Still shaky from the death trap, I fumbled through my contact listing and started an audio call to the local enforcement office. 
only for some reason the call wouldn't connect. I thought I must have keyed in the wrong information, so I tried again, and thankfully someone picked up. Hello, answered a low voice. This is Private Investigator Blickenscythe. I need to report an emergency situation. How unfortunate. The voice was slow, calm. What's happened? Someone's modified their apartment into a death trap. I suspect there's also more here. I need a squad sent here immediately. We have to get this- No. The voice caught me off guard, disrupted my thoughts. No one's coming for you, Uriel. You're going to die there, alone. The call ended with a blast of high-frequency noises, which appeared to fry my datapad instantly. Everything leading up to that moment, the investigation, the bathroom, the conversation, all felt so surreal. But the screeching sound seemed to pull me out of my trance, and I bolted down the hallway toward the main exit. I was a mere 24 paces from the double doors when the security shutters closed with a heavy clang, blocking any hope of an easy escape. I immediately changed tactics and clumsily used my tools to get into the closest apartment. I had half hoped to trigger an alarm, but had no such luck. The real plan, though, was to get out through a window, since I was still on the first floor. But this also proved to be impossible. The glass was defense-grade, bulletproof, and thanks to the security measures in place, entirely unwilling to open. Switching tactics again, I turned to the main hollow wall of the hab and tried to trigger an emergency. To my horror, the emergency services were disabled. My feeling of dismay shifted quickly to a feeling of dread. I rushed to pull up the blueprints in an attempt to find another way out of the building. I scanned the map for only a few seconds before the screen began to flash a display of blinding lights. I looked away, the pattern still burned into my retinas, turning just in time to make out the shape of someone behind me. That's the last thing I remember. Well, then I remember being here, in this interrogation room. I'm being entirely honest, officer, when I say that I'm unsure what triggered your arrival. So, it wasn't you that sent the message? No, I wasn't able to get anything out. What about the previous day? Your day off? Did you perhaps mention the case to a fellow P.I.? Someone who would notice your absence? <laughs> P.I. work is competitive and thankless. You should try it out sometime. Then I suppose that concludes our interview. Great. You can send any follow-up questions to my apartment. I'm gonna need a few days of vacation after all this. You're not going anywhere, Uriel. Welcome, citizens, to Liberty, Tales from the Tower. 
As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, we here at Tower 4 have a few brief but special announcements. We would like to thank those of you who stopped by our table at Free Comic Book Day at the Dark Side in Sarasota, Florida. And we'd also like to inform all of you that we'll be in attendance at the upcoming Megacon convention on May 26th in Orlando. We will have free stickers for all of you. A quick announcement. Director Yale of the Department of Research and Development is now seeking new and talented individuals to greatly expand the DRD. This after a recent allocation increase the department was approved by the Archon herself. Just how important can these scientific breakthroughs be? What unknown threats lie in wait beyond our walls? Genetic Markers was written by guest author Ben Thompson and read for us by Daniela Jones. can't be right. The world seemed to spin around me, pulling me down into an invisible vortex as I stared at the inexhaustible string of numbers plastered across my desk holographic display. In the darkness of this empty room, with only the soft glow of the display throwing light onto the stacks of manuals and empty meal canisters strewn about my workstation, I truly believed that for a moment I could almost hear my psyche being crushed ever so much further into a twisted black ball of crippling anxiety and misery. Rubbing futilely at bloodshot eyes, I stared in unblinking gaze at the display, somehow trying to telepathically will the numbers into being correct through the sheer force of my barely contained frustration. That, too, was a failure. It was the 11th time I'd processed this sequence. I'd used four different programming languages, consulted a dozen colleagues, and scanned dozens of texts, manuals, and guides during the past 12 weeks. I slept on the floor underneath my workstation, ate meals at my desk, and hadn't seen the light of the sun for what seemed like days. This fucking project had cost me my boyfriend, my sanity, and now it was going to cost me my career. I was in the final year of apprenticeship for my master's mark, with only this vile string of meaningless text standing between me and a half-decent career in the Department of Research and Development. The other students who had come in at the same time as me had already earned their mark and moved on to more meaningful projects, yet here I remained doomed to toil away on data analysis that I was apparently too incompetent to decipher. Maybe I deserved to be relegated to the waste disposal division where I'd undoubtedly spend my days monitoring the pressure levels for other people's shit. If I wasn't competent enough to complete a simple project like this, how could the Archon trust me with anything greater? It was supposed to be a simple analysis, nothing more. A couple months ago, a research team operating deep in the Archon Forsaken Waste had collected a few samples of water from an unattended fringe reservoir, and all I had to do 
was process the data from the samples, catalog any bacterial or microorganism specimens present, and compile a report on it. I'd project a timeline of six weeks when I presented it to the senior advisor, yet in practice, for some reason, this was an almost unsurmountable task. The data, the data, just never came back right. There was always something off about it. There were stories that the team who had performed the sampling had suffered a catastrophe during their excursion to the fringe, and that many of the people on the mission did not return. At first, I believed this to be a wild rumor, or possibly just my colleagues joking with me, but the more I looked at these numbers, the more I started to believe it to be true. I'd become obsessed with finding the truth, a quest that often distracted me from actually completing the work. But every lead I followed always ended up as a dead end. Cursing underneath my breath, I stretched out, flexing unused leg muscles as I rose from my station and dejectedly began the long, cold walk through the dark hallway that separated my bank of research cubes from the ominous office of the senior advisor. Dr. Albeck was there, as she seemingly always was, regardless of the time. The running joke among my colleagues was that she was a vampire. Through the glass window, I could see her sitting at her massive desk, hastily modifying a series of vastly intricate holographic displays. Even in a distracted state, she was so utterly terrifying that I froze in my tracks. I broke into a cold sweat almost immediately. I approached the large steel door, tried my best to collect myself, and knocked twice. She called for me to enter. Enter. I opened the heavy door to a large, cold office, spartanly decorated with scientific models and lit only by the incandescent holograms before her. The dim light threw eerie shadows on her face, highlighting every frown line into an ominous black scar. Behind her, a massive window offered a commanding view of the atrium skyline. Towering buildings jutted up into the darkness of the night sky, looming into the distance like monstrous giants. She said nothing. She just fixed her iron gaze at me, her visage sending chills up my spine and making it hard for me to find my words. It, it, it still isn't working, I blurted, unable to contain my shame and frustration. Still, she said nothing. I don't even think she blinked. Regardless of what I try, the samples just aren't coming back with usable data. Everything is muddled, and I, I think the samples may have been corrupted. Dr. Albert curled her lip up in unconcealed disgust. Perhaps you just aren't capable of research. She said coldly before returning back to her ledger. My heart raced with panic. No, senior advisor, I'm truly trying everything. Originally, the samples came back with genetic markers indicating the water had been corrupted with excess amounts of human DNA. I had heard rumors that several members of this expedition did not return alive, but even assuming possible contamination from the scientists killed during the expedition, that would not account for the quantity or consistency of the markers in the sample. Senior advisor, we have eight samples taken from different locations within the same reservoir, and they are all testing with almost equal levels of human genetic material, coupled with what appears to be diatom and dinoflagellate species that we can't fully identify because of the data corruption. I can only assume that. My rambling protestations were cut short 
by the sharp, loud bang of Scientist Albrecht's hand slamming down onto her desk. She looked past her work, her eyes pinpoint blades stabbing out through the darkness at me. I instinctively flinched back like I was about to be slapped. I don't want to hear any more excuses, Castellano, she snarled through her gritted teeth. You've had weeks to work this out. Your deadlines have been reshuffled a dozen times to accommodate your weakness, your inability to perform even a simple data analysis. I no longer possess the patience required to suffer through your unceasing excuses, unprofessional accusations, and outlandish tales. Now, if you believe the lab corrupted your samples, you need to get off your ass and discuss it with them. Although I can assure you they will be even less accommodating of your whining than I've been. She held her eyes on me, digging through me like a blade. I was shaking, trying hard not to simply burst into tears. My head was reeling. The world was spinning worse than before, and I staggered backward towards the door, trying to regain my footing. Castellano, I have already informed the division chief that he will have this analysis from our lab by the end of the week. If you fail me, I will do everything in my power to ensure that you spend the rest of your pitiful career scrubbing septic tanks in a sub-basement somewhere, preferably the fringe. Now get out of my office. I'm finished with you. I swallowed hard, barely able to stand. She went back to her work as though the exchange had never happened. By the time the elevator door closed around me, my nascent tears had already turned to rage. Rage at myself, at the senior advisor, at the spreadsheets, the manuals, the sampling crew, and the lab techs downstairs. For a moment, I was almost glad that most of the assholes who took the samples were never heard from again. I scanned the board and pressed B5, initiating the long descent from my 57th floor office to the depths of sub-basement B5. As the display counted down towards my inevitable confrontation, I set my jaw, straightened my clothes, and steeled myself for war. This was my career, my education, and my future on the line, and not even the founder herself was going to keep me from examining those accursed water samples with my own eyes. Absolutely not, Miss Castellano. It's against protocol. Senior Scientist Felix, the night manager of the DNA analysis lab was a tall, skinny older man, balding except for random tufts of white hair that seemed to jut out of his head at asymmetric intervals. He moved quickly through the sterile lab, placing meticulously labeled vials of strange colored liquids into well-marked cabinets for storage. Now, if that's all, I'm very busy. I instinctively felt myself turning to leave, as though I was just so ready to accept my powerlessness. I shook it off. Fuck that. No, there's an error in this sample, and it's been corrupted by the presence of excess human DNA. Whoever performed the sampling ruined any chance of meaningful analysis. I demand a new set of numbers. I want to see the sample myself, and I want the access to the reports from the field team that performed the sampling. The man froze, still in process of straightening up the lab. My words hung in the tense blue-white light of the facility, seemingly echoing out above the hum and buzzing of the lab equipment all around us. And I became very aware of the fact that there was no one else around. Dr. Felix turned slowly and deliberately. In one hand, he held a volumetric flask of blood-red liquid. In the other, a large hooked pair of chemistry forceps that suddenly seemed overly menacing. His face was twisted in an expression that I could not easily decipher. He spoke slowly and chose his words carefully. Miss Castellano, 
You are in no position to make demands of this lab. He had intentionally avoided the word citizen, and I backed away as he began walking towards me. Do you have any idea how much time and resources go into DNA analysis, Miss Castellano? I oversaw the analysis of your samples personally, and I can assure you that there is nothing wrong with them. I backed up, crashing hard into a lab workstation and rattling beakers and tongs against the stainless steel table. He continued his menacing approach, his slightly uneven eyes barely masking the illusion of sanity. I could smell his breath. Look around you, Miss Castellano. We have thousands of pieces of data that need to be investigated, and all of them are more urgent than reprocessing a glass of water for an apprentice scientist who can't even properly analyze our results. For a moment, neither of us moved. Then, with a smug, self-satisfied sneer, he relaxed, backing away in a way that almost looked fringier. He looked and walked over to the cold storage cabinet. It opened with a hiss, billowing white vapor into the room as he placed the red vial on one of the shelves. I released my white-knuckled grip on the edge of the lab table and quickly made my way towards an exit while his back was turned. I pushed out through a heavy pressure-controlled doorway and sped down a dimly lit corridor towards the elevators, only to quickly and horrifyingly realize that this wasn't a hallway I'd been to before. I quickly scanned the signage, trying to get my bearings, desperate to escape this miserable sub-basement. I froze when I saw it. An ordinary-looking security door labeled H2O Sample Storage. The lab had been officially closed for hours. My mark got me down here, but I knew that there was no way I would be able to get this door open without triggering some sort of alarm. I know it was probably not the wisest decision, but all I could think of was my advisor cackling sadistically as she banished me to a lifetime of misery. I wasn't going to let that happen. I had to know. I swiped my hand into the scanner and entered the room. I shut the door quietly behind me and turned to see a large, sterile laboratory storage room lined with glass refrigeration units containing thousands of water samples, each labeled with strings of numbers indicating the samples. Time was of the absolute essence. As I ran from case to case, fumbling through rows of jars in search of a sample I've never seen before in real life, I racked my brain trying to remember the seemingly random sequence of numbers that made up the file name of my data. Fuck! I've stared at this fucking file every single day for months and I can't remember what it's even called. What the fringe is wrong with me? I fucking deserve to be fired! Or arrested? Or I guess potentially murdered by the creepy night lab tech in the gloomy sub-basement? I was near the back of the water sample room when I heard the distinctive, terrifying sound of a mark being scanned by the reader on the other side of the door. An icy chill ran through my blood as the mechanisms in the door unlocked. I dove behind a cooling unit as the door burst open. I could hear Dr. Felix's voice. She's in here. I know it's her. We can't let her escape. Two sets of footsteps hustled into the room, spreading out. I wiped the sweat from my face, closed my eyes, and took a deep breath. Eight 
1776-234. Raw data decoupled. Underscore singletons removed version 4 final.sp. The file name that served as a permanent header on my vid monitor for the last weeks of my life was suddenly so clear that I could have told you the font size. I scanned the storage units as the footsteps came closer, counting silently through the numbers until I saw it resting impossibly far on almost the other side of the room, 876-234. My hiding place was untenable. They would find me. I was going to be stopped just meters from a sample I knew would exonerate me. Crouching in the corner, sweating rain, I waited for my opportunity. The footsteps grew closer. I saw a shadow coming around the corner. I could hear breathing. I made my move. I lunged forward, slamming the full force of my body as hard as I could into the division emblem on Dr. Felix's teal coat. The old man made a startled noise as he sprawled out, <gasps> crashing hard onto the ground with an unceremonious thump. The other person in the room, a large, muscular security officer, charged forward and shouted for me to stop. Hey. A warning that obviously went unheeded. Stop. I sprinted to the refrigeration cabinet, threw it open, and clutched at a small vial labeled... 876-237-3-southwest corner. The officer banged his leg into a refrigeration unit and stumbled briefly. Dr. Felix screamed for him to grab me. I instinctively popped the lid off the sample and peered inside. What I saw was clearly no ordinary glass of water, even for something collected in the fringe. Swirling all throughout the water taken from the fringer reservoir was a thick cloud of some kind of strange iridescent golden material that swelled and pulsated with the movement of the vial. It was mesmerizing and beautiful, seemingly possessing a life of its own. It was unlike anything I had ever seen. A phosphorescent cloud of microbial life that was truly alien to behold. Against all my best instincts as a scientist, I impulsively felt an uncontrollable urge to reach my hand in and touch it. When the security officer grabbed me hard by the elbow and jerked me towards him, I acted instinctively, if not intelligently. Panicked and startled, I hurled the vial at him, splashing the mixture up towards his face. Why I did this, I can't be certain, except to say that I believe the microbes themselves might have had something to do with the urges. The officer staggered back releasing me, and uttered one of the most horrible, blood-curdling noises I have ever heard anything produce. He clawed at his face as the glowing golden swarm overtook his flesh. With the consistency of a thick oil, the glowing organism slowly coated his skin, filling into his eyes, mouth, and nose, spreading down through his tactical vest towards the rest of his body. Stumbling blindly, shrieking and howling in agony, the officer clutched his eyes, only to have his hands immediately covered in the thick golden goo as well. He staggered, still shrieking, crashing into a table and falling to his knees. I backed away as he desperately reached his glowing hands out for aid. His blind grasp landed firmly on the bare neck of senior scientist Clovius Felix who was only just now staggering to his feet. Dr. Felix barely flinched as the golden microbial ooze transferred from the officer's hand to Felix's skin, spreading upwards onto his face and down the inside of his coat. 
Felix hatefully locked his eyes towards me. He knew his fate was already sealed. The microbes devoured his skin and the tissue with unnerving speed, dissolving his cheek and exposing the teeth, skull, and jawbone on the right side of his face in under a minute. Before the last of it overtook him, he slurred out one final admonition. You were only supposed to analyze the sample! I stared emotionlessly back, feeling nothing for his plight. Instead, I did my best to document everything I could about the event I was witnessing. I am a scientist. I'm not going to apologize for asking questions. I'm not going to ignore significant scientific results. You should not have stood in my way. His lifeless body made a sickening noise as it hit the linoleum. At a room temperature of 18 degrees, it took just under five minutes for the microbial substance to devour all organic material on both men, leaving behind nothing but a pile of bones, teeth, hair, and clothing. The golden color of the sample intensified significantly upon absorbing their genetic material, then reconstituted itself into a viscous, semi-cohesive puddle that could easily be recollected for further analysis. The substance was non-reactive when interacted with by cloth, plastic, glass, or stainless steel, and the mesmerizing effect it initially had seemed to have temporarily subsided. As I headed toward the elevators to depart, I hazarded a glance through the window of the senior advisor's office. Dr. Albrecht was there, still seated at her large, ominous desk, her body dimly lit by the holographic displays while the imposing cityscape loomed large behind her. She clawed frantically at her flesh, digging at her skin with bloody nails, her screams muffled by the large steel door and glass windows, her face contorted into a bone-chilling look of agony. I didn't break my stride on the way to the elevators. After all, I didn't have time to deal with someone who claimed to be finished with me. No, I had an application to submit to the division chief and his staff, and I was very confident that this one was going to leave them speechless. Welcome, citizens, to Liberty Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, we here at Tower 4 have a few brief but special announcements. The writing for Critical Research Season 2 is nearing completion, and we look forward to recording soon. We have many new and returning voices to record, and we'll be welcoming new voices to our broadcast in the long term. Additionally, the Department of Public Affairs is having an open house at our Tower 4 facilities next week that we are. Would you like to see how to strive towards a career in our division? Come by during shifts 2 to 4 to take tours of our multitude of facilities. Please don't. Facilities open to the public for this event include the audio broadcast stations, the Interactive Media Production Center, and the Gray Theory Art Gallery. And there will even be a presentation by the Division of Community Order. So to learn more about one of our city's key departments, 
and look into a possible future career, stop by Tower 4. Feel free to bring children and students as well. Please don't. The Department of Public Affairs also released several stories last week, including tonight's tale. Infection was written by Emily Amasquita and Caitlin Statz and is read for us by Peter Lewis. train announcer stirred me back to reality. The drone of the normal, everyday routine can begin to blend together so easily. The announcer stated the stop of my employment, not my residence, so I accepted the harsh reality of it only being the morning. Flowing with the crowd, I wound my way back through the tired-eyed, bored, and normal faces of the first shift workers. They would go their way, and I'd go mine, and not many people can go my way. Minutes passed, and my loyal feet were set to automatic action, bringing me to the building, floor, and office of my employment. There, the small red dot of my office desk blinked. Typing in the passcode, I sifted through updates and texts as the audio message played. Dr. Ames, we have just prepared subject 85729 for study. Your team will be available any time during shifts 1 and 2 for the sample extraction procedure. The preliminary files have been forwarded to your terminal. Please select an appropriate time for the procedure and submit it so that your team may prepare accordingly. It ended abruptly. No thank you or re-endures. I found the appropriate accompanying message on the terminal. Time slots of available, viable lab times were listed before me. I had already completed the preparatory work earlier in the week regarding this case and would only require an hour or so to reread what was needed, so I chose the earliest time slot, just four hours from the time I had heard the message. With a tap of my finger and a victorious beep, the terminal sent out the information to my team. Actually, conducting research was honestly more exciting than flipping through placement applications all day. Sorting through files at the terminal, I opened the appropriate target. One of many files in the domain of my studies, subatrian biology and pathology. In my younger years, I had been so excited, so enthused to study the biology of fringers, those from beyond our wall. Now, years later, the novelty had worn off, and not just due to the fact that I'm not permitted to speak of my work. Tapping open the file, my mind split in two, one half taking in the information, the other half daydreaming about the nice waitress at the Sunset Cafe, who always left me extra sweet packets with my drinks. The file, a meal break, and several placement application reviews later, the time had come to physically prepare for the sample extraction procedure. 
The elevator took me down to the appropriate basement level where my lab uniform waited in the unmarked and squeaky locker. Sliding the coat on, I stepped through to the next room, taking this opportunity to scrub my hands and pull a fresh set of goggles and masks to my face. Two of my assistant team were already in the procedure room with two RAD officers. My datapad update confirmed the visuals. The subject had already been sedated and the procedure could begin shortly. My specific specialty is Fringer Biological Abnormalities and Pathologies. It is my work that is used as reference for those broadcasts and released descriptions of Fringers that the public knows so well. All of that information without my name attached, of course. The information deemed fit for public release falls within the domain of the Department of Public Affairs and the protective gaze of the Archon. Having seen many fringers on my operating table, I am glad to have the Archon watching over me, watching over Atreus. Before me, now, slept another such detestable subject, and with my team awaiting, I flung the door open and approached. Subject 85729 is sedated and restrained, Dr. Ames. It was the small, squeaky voice of the new assistant, lacking any confidence or bravado. I nodded to him and to the more seasoned assisting nurse. Thank you. Prepare the first needle. I was curt, but I still had things to do. I took up my data pad and began my visual inspection of exterior abnormalities. Subject 85729 exhibits several external physiological abnormalities. Ink has been injected into the skin on both the left buccal and upper abdominal areas. These will be photographed following the skin's removal and cross-referenced with other subdermal inkings from previous subjects. The subject is missing its left thumb and the large toe of the left foot. While scarring from physical injury is common across the body, a particularly distinct pattern of scars is present on the cranial frontal region and stretches down the nasal bridge. This will also be cross-referenced. The left leg below the knee shows significant bloating with predominant veins and arteries. The anterior tibial and posterior tibial veins are distinctly prominent and almost black in color. I will draw additional blood from this area following procedural blood withdrawal. The upper torso and chest are dotted with large pustules varying in size from approximately 2 to 7 centimeters. And the area surrounding these pustules presents with a deep red rash and same vein discoloration as in the bloated leg. These are all the present external physical abnormalities. With the preliminary external record taken, it was time to take samples. Looking at the assistant in confirmation, he handed me the prepared needle. I moved toward the rhythmically breathing subject. Swabbing the area of the inner arm, the muscles twitched and I pulled back. Years into this work and I could still be a bit jumpy. Re-establishing my composure, I took up the needle with confidence, inserting it into the median cubital vein with ease. 
The vacuum tube began to fill, blood rushing in. The arm of the fringer burst upwards, snapping the restraints like cheap adhesive. The assistants stumbled and the officers sprung to action, but not before the deed was done. Wrenching the needle free of his arm, he had lashed out with it, swinging wildly. For a mere moment, the needle punctured my arm, the sting of it shocking me to reality. Get it! I screamed. Lash it down! The officers had reached him now, one knocking the needle from his flailing arm. As the blood from the vacuum tube splattered across the ground, the assistants recoiled yet again. It was a biohazard. As the officers held him and lashed him down with additional restraints, I bellowed at the assistants, Clean that up. I backed toward the door. Sedate it. Lock it up. We'll reschedule. I wondered if they had seen. Cursing the fools internally, I raced out of the door, out of the basement levels, and to my lone office. How did this happen? Taking off my lab coat, I saw the minuscule point on my forearm. A needle puncture stared up at me from my arm, and I stared back. The alarms went off in my head. Biohazard. Contamination. Category A. I knew the protocol. I was usually on the other side. My only choice was to ignore it. The alternative was... unacceptable. No one knew, and no one had to know. I washed my arm in the bathroom sink, cracking open the first aid kit. As my arm was fully soaked, a knock came to my office door. Flustered, this all seemed like some horrible cosmic joke. Floris Monroe, an efficient fellow researcher, was a kind but at times over-involved woman. Dr. Ames, it's Floris. I heard about the security breach. Are you okay? Your assistant said you stormed off. Drying my arm, I opened the door to see her. Fine. I... I'm fine. I was visibly distraught and knew it. I refuse to work in that lab until those restraints have been replaced and the sedation assistant re-evaluated. I cursed, my situation sending me into a downward spiral. We work with monsters, but everything is too lackadaisical. What if something had happened? She stared at me, perplexed, unsure of how to react to my rather unprofessional rant. Given the circumstances, I'm sure Dr. Hayes would understand if the subject study was postponed a few days. Perhaps take some time to write up the incident report and then go home for the day. She attempted to be helpful. Incident report? Yes, that, that sounds like an excellent idea. Thank you, and may the Archon watch over you. May the Archon watch over you too. I nodded and shut the door. Within minutes, I had hastily typed the incident report, my torrent of anger in its words, but with no mention of my wound. Once it was sent, I left for my apartment. Broadcasts, a nice meal. I tried anything to get my mind off my wound. 
The slow, dull ache in my arm was a consistent, pestering reminder. I had taken medication, but I didn't know what I had been exposed to. To find out, I would need to finish my study of the subject, but to get medication, I would need to report the incident. And I knew what happened to those infected. I took a long, hot shower. The steaming water relaxed my mind, and the dull pain in my arm seemed to fade, but only slightly. As the haze of the shower cleared, and I stood before my mirror, I let my gaze fall in horror to the mark on my arm. Dull, pulsing pain returned to me as I stared down. In an unclear radius, the minuscule puncture had expanded into a splotch of purpling flesh and blackening veins. My breathing grew rapid, and I felt myself beginning to panic. What? Nothing... nothing should progress so quickly. Pacing my bathroom, I thought logically about my predicament. I had access to the subject who had infected me, and could, therefore, find out what ailed me and find a way to fix it. I thought diligently on how I could create a fix for my problem without informing others of my contamination. The building was well known to be heavily guarded, those not on shift being turned away from even retrieving forgotten data pads during unauthorized times. So, I set my sights on finding my solution tomorrow. Downing some medication, I retreated to my bed, the exhaustion of the day washing over me. Upon waking, the world was different. It moved more slowly, felt hot and ached to move in. Struggling to the bathroom, I gazed blurrily into the mirror once more, only to regret my actions. My flesh seemed almost ghostly, a grim shade of sickly white that appeared slightly translucent. Beneath my skin, I could see the outlines of my veins growing ever darker as the inky blackness overtook them in my sleep. The purpling skin on my arm now encompassed half of the limb, and the area nearest the prick was a bright, vibrant red. The weakness in my limbs tried to control my actions, beckoning me to sit and rest, but I knew that my only savior was the subject. I had to reach the lab. In minutes of slow, arduous work, I had dressed, taking care to cover my skin, and wore a privacy hood to obscure my ghastly visage. Unable to stomach meal, I left for the train. With faltering feet, I reached it and thanked the Archon for open seats. When I finally stumbled through the doors of the building, I was feeling lightheaded. I pushed through, trying to ignore the signs of fatigue my body was sending me. Turning a corner, I ran into Dr. Hayes. Dr. Ames? Dr. Sabina Hayes was not only the lead of the division, but an actual polite and attentive boss. Acacius, you don't look well. I had never come to work ill before, and with Dr. Hayes' observant nature, she would certainly have recognized this. She looked confused and particularly curious. You look rather unusual. 
She brought herself back to the present, seeming lost in thought. Regardless, you should speak with your assistants. Your subject from yesterday was deemed unviable for study following its recent outbursts. All attempts to utilize standard sedation procedures failed and the subject expired. Now you know as well as I that with the recent no-man zone incursion, we have quite the pileup of subjects. So please get to work regarding the next straight away. The department is she not happy... She was speaking, but my mind was gone. Without the subject... I didn't have access to the samples I would need. Even with my sickly disposition, I appeared distraught. Acacius, are you listening? Are you okay? You look upset. Dr. Hayes stared me down, but soon a beep was audible from her privacy hood. Excuse me, there's much to do. Take care of yourself, Dr. Ames. And with a step around the corner, she was off into the maze of the building. I took the elevator to my office's floor and darted through my door. The panic set in again, but in my distress I resorted to simple logic. I needed to document my illness's progression, determine if it matched any previously documented and studied pathologies. If so, a way to combat the illness may already exist. So I began my log, setting my datapad to encrypt my voice recordings. Hour 9. 30 hours after incident. The puncture wound is located on the ventral side of my left forearm. As of this time, the area directly around the affected area, in a diameter of about 10 centimeters, is now a vibrant red, sore to the touch and swelling. The whole left arm is now presenting with purple discoloration. Flesh across the body not affected by these direct discolorations is paling, and prominent veins are appearing to discolor black. Hour 10, 31 hours after incident. The purpling discoloration of the left arm has spread a centimeter up into the shoulder. The arm feels sore, more so around the red puncture point circle. While nauseous, I am beginning to feel hungry. To stave off the lightheadedness and feeling of muscle fatigue, I have been resting on the sofa in the office. Hour 11. 32 hours after incident. I am feeling weaker in my limbs. I skipped breakfast in my rush to the office this morning, so I'm going to take my lunch early. The black veins in my arm are growing more prominent. Hour 12, 33 hours after incident. I ate my meal. I also ate another meal, one that I keep in my desk for days when I forget to bring lunch. But I'm still so hungry. My arm has begun to swell above the elbow. Hour 13. 34 hours after incident. On bathroom floor. Threw up all the meal. So hungry. Need to go. Home. Hour 15. 36 
hours after incident. Yes. I I got home. I took pills from work. They dulled the pain enough to, to get home. I, I'm so hungry and so itchy. My skin, it, it all itches. And my arm, the, the affected arm, burns. Argon, oh, it burns. Hour 16. 37 hours after. I've been scratching my leg. The itching doesn't stop. I can't look anymore. I can't tell anyone. They'll kill me. I know it. I'm it. Now, I'm the thing. I'm the contaminant. Oh, oh, so itchy. My veins in my leg, my arm, black and wriggling. That monster gave me something. The veins are traveling through my body, moving, detached. Are they even veins? Hour 17, 38 hours after. Haven't stopped itching. Haven't stopped. Won't stop. Took off my clothes. They, they got in the way of the scratching. So hungry. Ate a tofu meal. Threw it up. Ate a pork meal. Threw it up. The purple is abnormal. On chest and back now. Legs, neck, everywhere in patches. Hot. Fever is high. Numbers too blurry to read. Everything is crawling. My veins wriggle beneath my scratches. Wriggle. My muscles twitch and move. My body feels not like my body. Slither. Slithering beneath my skin. If I scratch, maybe I can get to it. Hour 18, 30-something hours, I saw it, saw it move, not just feel, saw it is wriggling and twisting within me. The subject must have given me something, the, the, the parasite using my veins as paths through me. When it moves, Argon, oh it gets so cold. Everything hot, but where it's been. So itchy where it is. 
of flesh stripped from scratching from my legs, torso, and arms. The twitching muscles which had before seemed so subtle now controlled my actions completely. A glance at the mirror resigned my trapped mind to horror. I was unsure of how long I had actually been home, ripping myself apart. The skin I had noted as being pale as canvas was now a splatter of purple and red, gashes in the canvas missing and oozing. The eyes looking back at me in the mirror were not my own. The sclera was murky red and the once blue iris turned black and it wriggled. That uncontrolled glimpse informed me of my loss. I let go. It consumed and scratched and I let it. I had trapped myself within my body as a prisoner of the contamination. But my body jumped as the door to my apartment swung open. Great behemoths of dark shadow crashing in and restraining my thrashing, feral body. Hope returned to my mind. All that was left of me. 
I would be saved, cured by the science of Atreus I knew to be brilliant and true. My body thrashing, my mind was exhausted. In the grasp of the biohazard suits, I let myself slip away to rest, my mind unable to continue the gruesome struggle. I awoke in a lab, my eyes shut before my mind. I still recognized the smell, though, of sterile equipment, plastics, metal cleaner, and my assistant's perfume. I was in my lab. I tried, but I could not move my body. I had no control over it anymore, but I certainly felt its senses. The body felt numb, which was a relief to the overall dull pain I felt across the limbs and torso. A bit hazy, I was glad to be on some sort of pain reducer. In the distance, I could hear the voice of Flores, though I could not make out her words. A wave of relief befell me. They would help me. The familiar door opened, and Flores' words became distinguishable. Dr. Hayes, subject 85731 is prepared for the sample extraction procedure. Welcome, citizens, to Liberty, Tales from the Tower. As your media director, it is my privilege to inform you that the following stories will contain content some listeners will certainly find disturbing. But first, we here at Tower 4 have a few brief but special announcements. We begin by informing you that Season 1 of Tales from the Tower is reaching its conclusion. With just one more story remaining, after tonight's tale, of course, we're going to begin our much-needed mid-season break. Originally, Tales from the Tower was only planned and written out to be three episodic stories worth of content. However, receiving positive feedback from so many of you, and also with the arrival of a number of story submissions from our beloved listeners, the broadcasts have continued well beyond their intended timeline. Thank you all for making this production possible. Speaking of which, tonight's story, Heavy Heart, was written by a dedicated listener and guest author, Sean Francis, and is read for us by both Sean Francis himself and special guest Lonnie Manella. So, what is the story behind this story? Apparently, Citizen Francis, working in Data Archival, came across a series of old audio logs while doing a final scrub on some old data pads. Since these logs, being literally hundreds of years old, no longer qualify for informational security, we see no problem in presenting them here. So let us share in the discoveries of our ancestors and learn what it was like to work in the mining subdivision in the year 172. Log, the 27th day of the 7th month, year 172, 1537. 
It's taken us more than long enough to get down here, but production is finally on schedule. All of my crew know how important our mission is to the colony. But with the constant construction on the surface in an effort to improve the lot of Reeves favored, a scarcity of neodymium or metal is the last thing Atreus needs. As such, everyone's taken to the work pretty enthusiastically, in spite of the muggy air and the constant midsummer heat. Lysinia has even been staying for an extra hour or two after each shift, bringing her compatriots extra metal and water and assisting with cleanup. She's an upstanding citizen. At this rate, I expect we'll be finished a few days ahead of schedule. I know my family will be grateful for the extra time I'll be home before my next assignment, and I'm sure the other's loved ones will feel the same. Just a matter of keeping up productivity. The 29th day of the 7th month, year 172, 4.21. I woke up in the middle of the night to a crashing noise. Apprehensive at the thought of one of my comrades being stuck beneath a boulder or a piece of broken machinery, I rushed out of my quarters half-dressed to see what could possibly have happened. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but it looks like part of the shaft has collapsed. There's rocks and debris everywhere, and the passageway is blocked up pretty solidly from floor to ceiling. I've got Antonia and Gallus searching for another way out of the mine, and I've given everyone else a half-day's break to boost morale, but things are looking grim. We may very well be stuck down here until a surface team is able to clear the obstruction or drill another entrance. Either way, that could take weeks at best and months at worst. Thank Reeve we came down here with a surplus of supplies. The others may have complained about the extra weight at the time, but if I've learned anything after a decade in the tunnels, it's that you can never, ever be too prepared. The 29th day of the seventh month, year 172. 1222. Gallus and Antonia have returned. No luck. All the other passageways either terminate before reaching the surface or simply go deeper. I've suspended our operations indefinitely in an effort to conserve the strength of my crew. We may need it if the rescue team requires our assistance. Attempts to contact the surface via both privacy hood and other longer-range communication methods haven't been successful. There appears to be some sort of interference that's blocking our signal. Each time we send out a distress call, we get back this odd, groaning static. If I didn't know better, I'd almost say it sounded like the call of some sort of creature. Fortunately, the only creatures I'm aware of are those damned separatists, and they're a ways off from where we're digging. The 31st day of the 7th month, year 172, 1730. I'm beginning to worry about Gallus. He's always been very strong and sharp-minded in spite of his age. I've never had occasion to ask, though I've always suspected he's pushing 60. But in spite of that, it looks like he's the first to be cracking under the pressure. It's only been a few days since the cave-in, and yet he's already more despondent than anyone else in the crew. He's taken to eating by himself and sleeping away from everyone else, and his attempts to assist with the day-to-day -day maintenance of our makeshift camp are anemic at best. I suppose as foreman that it's my duty to try to help return him to his senses. Perhaps I'll have a talk with him after dinner and see if there's something on his mind. Besides the obvious. The 31st day of the 7th month, year 172, 1802, Gallus has gone missing. No one seems to have seen him leave. At first I thought he might have headed back to the entryway to try to clear out some of the blockage, but there was no one there when I checked and the rubble looks undisturbed. Antonio's upset. She blames herself for the foul mood Gallus has been in. Evidently, they split up over the course of their search, and he'd changed by the time they next saw one another. 
She's concerned that he stumbled upon something that disturbed him, perhaps the corpse or the forgotten tools of a long-lost miner. Lysinia and I have been doing our best to console her, but to no avail so far. As hesitant as I am to organize a search for Gallus, the more we exert ourselves, the more quickly we'll burn through our meal. I'm more concerned that leaving him to his fate will cause morale to plummet to a low from which we'll be unable to recover. We split up into small groups and are presently giving the dig site a thorough looking over for any sign of our absent compatriot. I just hope it isn't too late. The first day of the eighth month, year 172-115. I can barely hold the recorder steady enough to log this entry. Something horrible has happened. I finally discovered Gallus no more than an hour ago. It turns out the reason for his recent distance from his comrades was that he'd been hoarding away supplies and objects from camp at the end of a mile's deep shaft. He'd been listening to us with his privacy hood and sneaking into camp when he knew we were all asleep, or so he said. Mine still doesn't seem to want to transmit any audio at all. As if this betrayal wasn't infuriating enough, he quickly graduated from selfishness to blasphemy when I confronted him about what he'd done. He insisted that Reeve has abandoned us to our fate and that she doesn't care about the plight of those like us, miners and other manual laborers. He began to rant about what he termed the lunacy of breaking our backs for the greater benefit of the colony. He told me that I didn't care what I did to him, that he was simply taking steps to ensure that he at least would survive the cave-in and make it back to the surface. By the end of his rant, his face was flushed, his eyes bulging. He was staring at me as if I was the source of all his troubles. He attacked me. Past his prime or not, I've never encountered a man with Gallus's raw strength. His hand seized my neck like a vise. Spittle splashed against my face as he began ranting and screaming in what sounded like a different language entirely. He tackled me to the ground, intent on choking the life out of me, bashing my head against the rocks. I groped for any possible weapon to drive Gallus away, a sharp stone, a discarded tool, anything. But nothing was in reach. I had fully resigned myself to the prospect of passing on when I felt Gallus's grip slacken. It was Antonia. She'd followed me out of concern for her friend, and now she'd killed him. Her hand drill still whirred as it sank deeper and deeper into Gallus's skull, and to my great revulsion, I could feel blood and brain matter splattering against my forehead. I managed to push Gallus to the side, sat up, and then collapsed from sheer exhaustion, taking deep, wheezing breaths, wanting so badly to console Antonia, who I could hear sobbing next to me, but simply unable to speak in my condition. Antonia managed to lead me back to camp in spite of her grief. I've since showered and had some time to recuperate. It looks like everyone else is asleep as of now, and I have no idea what I'll tell them when I wake up. I expect that the telltale bruises on my neck will do much of the talking for me. The first day of the eighth month, year 172, 1032. The other miners took the news of Gallus's passing more poorly than I could have feared. There was something of a riot. Supplies stolen, equipment destroyed. The prevailing thought seems to be that Antonia and I killed Gallus in cold blood because he'd discovered some secret tryst we were supposed to be having, which is utterly ridiculous. I have a spouse and children on the surface to whom I'm very loyal. Most everyone else has departed to set up camp elsewhere and under new leadership. Lysinia and Antonia have stayed behind, though in the case of the latter, she's justifiably racked with enough grief and guilt that she is more or less just another mouth to feed. 
There should be just enough meal and fresh water left to last us a few more weeks if we ration it very carefully. I can only hope that a rescue team will find us before then. The third day of the eighth month, year 172. 1854. It's been days since Gallus died, and Antonia hasn't shown any sign of recovering. If anything, she's gotten worse. She's taken to going everywhere with her privacy hood in place. When I asked why, she said she was adjusting to the fact that she'd never hear his voice via the hood again. If her hood is acting up like mine has been, all she's been hearing is the same odd, moaning sort of static that's been broadcasting since the cave-in. Listening to that all day would just about cause me to lose my sanity, but I suppose that in her current mental state, it must not be bothering her all that much. Thank the Archon Lysinia is doing all right. If we... no, when we get out of here, I'm giving her a vacation. She's been keeping an inventory of our remaining supplies by hand, since much of our technology seems to be malfunctioning, and frankly, she's been doing a better job of taking care of Antonia than I have. At least Lysinia can get her to eat. I thought I heard some scratching coming from behind one of the walls earlier today. Assuming that it must have been one of our rescuers, I banged against the wall and shouted out our location, but the noise stopped soon after. Maybe it was just the shifting of sediment, or perhaps into the cave-in. I've been a little depressed ever since. The third day of the eighth month, year 172, 3148. A few hours ago, I was once again awoken by a loud noise, one that sounded less like another cave-in and more like some sort of scuffling or struggling. At the center of camp, I discovered that Lysinia had been attacked. She's fine, fortunately, aside from a black eye and a rather nasty cut on her cheek that'll require some stitches. What's more disturbing is that it was Antonia who attacked her. Lysinia said that she could hear some strange noises coming from Antonia's tent grunting, keening, and mumbling in some sort of nonsense language. Thinking that Antonia might have been having a nightmare about Gallus, Lysinia opened the tent, planning to wake her friend up, only to discover that Antonia was already awake, privacy hood on, speaking to someone, or something. What's more, Antonia was using her hand drill, the same one that ended Gallus's life, to bore a hole into the ground, the dirt and debris from her digging scattered on either side of her. As soon as Antonia realized that she was being observed, she moved to attack. Not with the drill, thank the Archon. At first, caught off guard as she was, Lysinia found herself unable to react as Antonia clawed and punched at her face. But she eventually managed to force Antonia off of her, at which point her assailant tore off down one of the tunnels. Since then, I've patched Lysinia up as best I could. I'm no doctor, but I've picked a few things up thanks to the nature of my profession. We both investigated Antonia's tent and the hole she was drilling, but couldn't find any clues as to what drove her to sudden madness. Lysenia wanted to go searching for Antonia, but I've managed to dissuade her. We simply don't have the manpower to mount an effective rescue operation, and even if we did find her, she's clearly beyond reason at this point. We've decided to take shifts watching out for Antonia, in case she comes back with harmful intent. Lysenia's sleeping now. Uh, let her rest for a bit longer than we agreed upon, as she's spent through a lot. After that, I'm sure we'll settle into regular shifts. The fourth day of the eighth month, year 172-659. I'm supposed to be sleeping now, but that scratching is starting to drive me mad. I don't know how Lysinia can possibly stand it. It sounds as if someone's scraping the damn walls with a shovel. 
Perhaps our operation has disturbed some ancient underground colony or maybe some new form of life. I have no fucking idea. But if it doesn't stop soon, I might just pull in Antonia and start drilling through the walls until I find the source. Please come for us soon. Someone. Anyone. I want to go home. Home. I want to go home. Maybe Gallus was right. Maybe... No. I'll not allow myself to be tainted by his heresy. Reeve cares. The Archon wants us home. I'm sure it will happen if we're patient. The fourth day of the eighth month, year 172, 833. I woke Lysenia up to ask if she could hear the noise. She said no. I'm beginning to doubt my own sanity. As a precautionary measure, I intend to barricade myself in one of the shallower tunnels using a few rebar slabs we found in the cave in debris. Lysinia will be taking over these log entries after this one. If this is the last you hear from me, I hope that my words will be useful in determining what's happening down here. May the Archon watch over us all. Lysinia's log, the fifth day of the eighth month, year 172, 900 hours. I hope it isn't necessary to keep Foreman Lucius secluded for too long. I've been doing my best to interact with him, particularly when it's meal time, but he seems to have ventured further and further from lucidity each time we chat. It's awfully lonely to be in camp by myself. In spite of the way they left us, I often find myself missing the rest of the crew. I wonder where they've gone and how they're doing. These tunnels are so vast and winding that, for all I know, they could be miles away. Maybe they found an escape route we overlooked. Pity I can't leave camp without risking that they'll return and take more of our supplies. I'm sure that there are others who are looking for us. Are they close now? I've tried to stay positive, especially around the others, but I'm starting to really worry. Couldn't they have contacted us in some way by now? Why aren't our communications devices working? I apologize. I know this is supposed to be a log of our operation and pouring my worries into it like this is very unprofessional. But these are extraordinary circumstances. It's useless talking to Lucius now. Even when he's lucid, he's so despondent. I'm sure we only have to hold out for a little while longer. I just hope Lucius is able to get some help before he winds up like the others. The fifth day of the eighth month, year 172, 1809. I can't believe it. I'm such an idiot. I thought I'd just close my eyes for a second and rest. And by the time I woke up, Lucius had escaped his makeshift prison. I had no idea he was so strong. It looks as if he tore through the rebar with his hands and teeth. I checked the supplies and he didn't take anything with him except his hand drill and his privacy hood. All the same, what do I do now? How can I possibly get him back when I don't know where he's gone or how dangerous he is? I saw those marks on his neck. I know what Gallus tried to do to him. What if he tries doing the same thing to me? There's no point in just waiting around. Sleeping is just an invitation for either Lucius or Antonia to catch me off guard. I have to find him. To try and bring him back to sanity. I'm doomed. The fifth day of the eighth month, year 172, 
2801, I found Antonia and Lucius and the other campers. They're all dead. I'm only writing this to get it all out of my mind, to keep myself from vomiting or having some sort of fit. I have to empty my mind of it so I can keep going. Okay. I decided to leave camp to search for Lucius. He left behind a trail of heavy boot prints for me to follow, so it wasn't very hard. It was about 10 minutes into the search that I discovered the first corpse, one of the miners, his neck broken, his body strewn across the ground like a discarded doll. That alone made me want to return to the relative safety of camp, but I pressed on. Like I said earlier, leaving Lucius and Antonia to their own devices could potentially have been the same as suicide. I found two more bodies before finally coming across the other camp. Everyone had been killed. Most by hand, some by drill. Supplies had been left untouched. I can't get the images out of my mind. So much death. Why is this happening? They were all upstanding citizens, driven to the brink by extraordinary circumstances. What did they do to deserve a fate like this? Lucius wasn't far beyond the camp. I found him just as he finished murdering Antonia. He'd smashed her head against the ground, just as Gallus tried to do to him. I begged and pleaded with him for a brief moment, but he had already started toward me, his privacy hood on and set to opaque, his expression inscrutable. I didn't have the courage to try to end his life before he could end mine, so I just turned and ran as quickly as I could, stumbling over the bodies of decent men and women that he'd senselessly slain. The other camp was large enough that once I reached it again, I decided that it was the place where I had the best chance at losing Lucius. I ducked behind a piece of heavy machinery and waited, doing my best to quiet my breathing, even as my lungs burned for air. I didn't notice the loose power cords a few feet away until it was too late. Lucius, close behind me, stepped on them and just fried. I can't think of a more apt way to describe what happened to his body. Even though everyone's gone, so at least there's no one left who can try to kill me, I'm still worried. Lucius and Antonia started to change after they saw Gallus die. Now I've seen Lucius die. Does that mean I'm next? Am I doomed to insanity, just like them? The sixth day of the eighth month, year 172. 220. I fear that the worst has come to pass. I must be going mad. How else can I explain that I've started to hear odd noises, like Lucius? I've been waking up at night to this strange groaning sound, much like the interference we're getting on our audio equipment, along with this odd clicking noise like nails on the rocks. It always stops right when I sit up. So most recently, I just laid there waiting, and it got louder louder until I finally screamed and ran from my tent and then it was gone I think I'm hallucinating too I checked where I heard the noise coming from after I woke up and I saw these odd little impressions in the dirt it almost looks as if something with numerous limbs maybe the size of a cart was roaming around the camp last night since nothing like that exists I must be seeing things and yet the tracks seem as real as the nose on my face. Is this how convincing Lucius's hallucinations were?
I can't imagine going back to sleep now. Will my insomnia accelerate my madness? The sixth day of the eighth month, 403. Even though it feels like I'm just appeasing my oncoming insanity, I've set a trap for that thing that keeps coming to camp. No, Lucinia, the thing you think is coming to camp. Anyway, it's just a simple thing. Just a stick propping up a large rock near my tent. But if this creature has any basis in reality, it should do the trick. The sixth day of the eighth month of the year 172, 550. It's real. I must have dozed off again shortly after my previous entry because I woke up to the sound of the rock slamming down onto the dirt. I scrambled out of my tent as quickly as I could and I saw it, some kind of multi-legged monster. Its tough hide smooth like obsidian, its mandibles clacking uselessly together as it lay dying beneath the stone that had crushed its thorax. Attached to its abdomen is some sort of long tube with fluid and ichor leaking out. What the fuck is this thing? If it were to tuck in its legs, it would look like nothing more than an especially shiny rock. Are there more of them? Is this what's been driving everyone crazy? I've sealed off the entryway into the other camp as a precaution. I've also burned the carcass of the thing. I hope it's enough. The 10th day of the 8th month, year 172, 1407. I'm writing this from a hospital bed, thank Reeve. A team finally arrived to rescue me shortly after I killed that creature. I was concerned at first that I'd suffer consequences for what happened in the mine, but a very nice man with official identification came to my room yesterday and told me that I'm to be commended and offered a lifetime supply of meal and new accommodations, so long as I never speak of what happened down there to anyone. I don't like the idea of the past few weeks' events being hidden away, but I think I'm going to accept his offer. I saw in Lucius's log that he wanted to give me a vacation when we all escaped, and I guess that, in a way, he has. I had a nightmare last night. I dreamed that I was back in the mine. I kept running and running and running, but I could hear them all chasing after me, Lucius, Antonia, and Gallus, and all the other miners. I could hear a scratching and clicking, too, and when I turned my head to look, I saw thousands of those strange monsters in the tunnel behind me, gaining on me and gaining on me. When I woke up, I thought for a moment that I had a bite on my neck, but I looked at myself in the mirror and didn't see anything. Perhaps it's best if I do forget all about what happened. Archon, protect me. Well, citizens, that concludes Season 1 of Tales from the Tower. The night is well over, and the sun is high. Cleaning Day was written and recorded by Caitlin Statz, with music by David Yasensky and Brandon Strader. We hope that you've enjoyed our inaugural season, and if you enjoyed it, we would welcome you to let our producers know by writing a short review on iTunes. Should you be a bit more squeamish, you can always send our producer an email instead at thelibertycomic at gmail.com. Broadcasts from Tower 4 will be taking a break for the next three months to accommodate the completion of Critical Research Season 2. We look forward to the exciting return on October 4th. 
just in time for New York Comic Con. If you find yourself needing more dramatic horror to fill your lonely nights before then, then we must highly recommend a broadcast called the No Sleep Horror Podcast. Tales that will not only frighten, but are also guaranteed to disturb as well. You might even recognize some of the talented voices you'll hear on their show. Well, my shift has come to an end. Next up, we have the morning news with Oriella Stolo. Oriella? Welcome, citizens. This is Oriella Stolo with AB3, and thank you for listening to all the Atria's lifetime news you need to know. The time is 12.20, and third shift workers should be moving along at a sky's pace to relieve our tired second shift fellows. A quick recap on yesterday's news. The Archon speech last night on the advancements of our northern and western security towers was captivatingly inspirational. The great turnout at Liberty Square was treated to a concert from the 8th Tower Quartet following the Archon's rousing broadcast. Archon Reeve ended by stating that the northern and western security advancements are only a small step towards a better and more resilient Atreus. In today's news, the next ration of nutritional absorption supplement shots have been distributed to medical technicians across all districts, so please be sure to book your slot to get your shot. Parents are reminded that interfering with the medical treatment of their children is not permissible. NAS shots are for the betterment of Atreus, helping us to advance and endure. A night out in the dazzling city lights is the best way to celebrate any day. But there is certainly only one place to seek reservations for founding week. The new Platinum Sky Bar off Jacob West Park is the new peak of Atrian sophistication. So call in, sit down, and grab a glass. Here at Platinum, the sky's the limit. In public safety news, all residents of Towers 5B, 5C, and 5F should have already noticed by now that the exits to these towers have been sealed. The streets are currently due for cleaning, and the chemicals for cleaning are slightly abrasive. Due to this cleaning, the doors have been sealed and the atmospheric systems have been attenuated. Please do not enter the public exterior areas of Towers 5B, 5C, or 5F. To leave Towers 5B, 5C, and 5F, please take the connecting bridges to Towers 5A and 5D and exit in the designated areas. Members of the Public Works Division will be posted in Towers 5B, 5C, and 5F, and the maintenance engineers in cleaning suits will be in the quarantine streets. So to recap, Residents of Towers 5B, 5C, and 5F may not utilize their direct street access until the quarantine is lifted. Thank you, maintenance engineers, for keeping our public spaces and commuting paths clean. In other news, the trial of Atelius Morgan is set to proceed tomorrow. While his guilt is known publicly, tomorrow his testament and the witness records of all those present at the scene of his treason will be documented and processed. Atelius Morgan, previously Officer Atelius Morgan of the 2nd South Division Patrol, was spotted assisting fringers attempting to cross the no-man zone. Atelius will be facing a death sentence for his crimes, and the fringers he was assisting have already been eliminated. Looking for a fashionable way to stay in communication throughout your day? Tillian Zhao has released the new solution for on-the-go, style-minded citizens. The new 2.5 Privacy Hood brings the latest advancements in short-range communication to you within a fashionable privacy fade hood. Breaking update, the cleaning quarantine for Towers 5B, 5C, and 5F have now been extended to Tower 5D. Do not try to use the 5D public exits. All residents in Towers 5B, 5C, 5D, and 5F must follow the directions of the designated maintenance engineers in regards to leaving these towers. Any member of the public seen in the public exterior areas of Towers 5B, 5C, 5D, and 5F will be detained instantly and without warning. So please, 
follow the instructions of the designated tower maintenance engineers for the duration of the cleaning. In lifetime news, in response to the positive feedback from yesterday's performance, the 8th Tower Quartet will be playing two encore concerts at the Dauntless Entertainment Hall. The quartet would like to thank everyone for the encouragement and appreciation of their music, and look forward to performing again soon. The dates for the encore events are still to be determined, but will be announced shortly. Breaking update. All the Tower 5 systems have now been placed under quarantine. The window security panels have been sealed to stop the potential gases from entering into the buildings. Please, citizens, follow the guidelines set out for you by the maintenance engineers, and please stay calm during the cleaning. We are being told that the situation is under control, and that as long as citizens stay inside their towers, they should not be affected. For your safety, and that of... What? Check the feed. Yes, thank you. We were just informed that the Tower 6 system, the whole Tower 6 system, has been placed under quarantine. Maintenance engineers have been dispatched already to enforce the quarantine. Those of you currently within the Tower 6 and Tower 5 systems must remain inside your towers. If you are a resident of these towers, you will not be permitted to return home until the quarantine has been lifted. Please contact a fellow citizen for assistance. In addition, a brief waiting zone has been prepared for stranded residents at the Dauntless Entertainment Hall. Meal will be provided. If you are just now joining us, due to a cleaning, the Tower 5 and Tower 6 systems are under quarantine. Eyewitnesses have just reported to us that the maintenance engineers have been spotted on the ground floor of these tower systems outside, setting up roadblocks and sealing off all entrances and exits to surround these tower systems. We have been told that no other systems should be affected and that the cleaning is under control. Please listen to any maintenance engineers and keep safe, citizens. We would now like to take some callers about this current cleaning. Online, we have Ignatius. Ignatius? Hello. I'd just like to say to everyone like myself who's been unable to reach their home due to the current quarantine that the current resting area set up for us over at the Dauntless Entertainment Hall has been wonderful. My children and I have been spending more time here since we can't return to our tower, and it's the first time that we've met some of our fantastic neighbors. Well, that is certainly nice to hear, Ignatius. For those listening, if you are unable to return home, a space will be provided for you at the Dauntless Entertainment Hall until the quarantine is lifted. Our next caller is Verinia. Verinia? Hi, Aurelia. I'm just a bit concerned. I'm in one of the towers in System 5, and I keep hearing yelling and loud noises from outside the windows. I can't really make out what's going on due to the emergency quarantine paneling, but it sounds like gunfire. We, we can assure you, Verinia, that the noises you hear are just the result of the cleaning equipment being properly utilized by the trained maintenance professionals. The loud equipment will persist until the work is completed, and due to the noise, you will hear some yelling from the maintenance engineers. We will take one more caller, and that is Hadrianus. Hadrianus? Sorry for that call, fellow citizens. We here at AB3 try to screen our callers, but sometimes pranksters get through. Oh! Sorry for that, citizens. Our window security panels were just deployed. We are now informed that the quarantine has spread to include the Tower 4 system, which includes our studio here at AB3. For those of you fellow citizens waiting the cleaning quarantine out, keep up your spirits. Our streets and grand towers will glisten with light for years to come after the cleaning has been completed. These brief inconveniences are mere slights leading to the betterment of HR. Oh! Wow! Fellow citizens, the cleaning equipment certainly is loud! I would like to apologize on behalf of the AB3 station for that interruption. The cleaning equipment may be heard... heard. The cleaning equipment may be heard clearly in our sensitive recording equipment and... 
Listen, though, to how diligently the maintenance engineers are working. That equipment does sound difficult to work with, so certainly... Someone is trying to overtake our signal. We are shutting down. Don't you dare! Fellow citizens, for those of you just joining us, the systems of Towers 4, 5, and 6 are currently under quarantine due to a diligent chemical street cleaning. Please, citizens, the situation is under control, but it is a dangerous process being undertaken by trained professionals. Please listen to our maintenance engineer. Cleaning will commence. Cleaning will be completed. Optimization underway. My apologies, citizens. Someone here at AB3 Station is playing a prank. As I was saying, please listen to our maintenance engineers and follow their directions to better ensure the quick and safe completion of the cleaning process. We can endure... What is that? How did it get in here? Oh, what are you, little guy? Are you a piece of cleaning equipment? Aurelia, get away from that thing. Don't worry, Yamada. It's so cute. Everyone, get out! Why, it can't be bigger than the palm of my hand. Get out! Mr. Yamada, let go of me! Get out of here! Get away from it! Ah! It bit me! It's not cute. Do you smell that? Do you see it? It's made out of fucking bone! Mr. Yamada... Not now, Aurelia. We need to get out of the recording booth. No, Mr. Yamada, we can't. Lock the door! There are hundreds of them. Reeve, look at them. They're biting through the wires. Oh. No. Those are teeth? I mean, Atrian teeth? The feed! Turn it off! Turn it off! 